Josh. No. No, I I introduced last time. You know I can't do it in front of people. We uh, have we do you have know how many times you've gone to this bit? We're approaching <laughs> fifty episodes. Fifty. You can't mm-hmm. keep going to this bit. It's stale. We gotta move on. It's if it was a bit and not my my inborn fear of failing in front of you, Sean. I don't I've been really nice lately. I have not like chastised <laughs> you for I, I felt like I was going a little too hard, and I have been nicer about your introductions and outros, and I feel like you've been doing a lovely job lately. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, okay, so... Um, you've done this tw- approximately 22 times. <laughs> I could start it off if you want. Greg, please, if introduce yourself. If I give you a... Please, yeah, please. Okay. Hi, welcome to Nashville CA. Hold on, let's see if I can... Uh, your double-featured, double-weekly podcast? Okay. Very good. <laughs> I was... I was, uh, I was catching up on a few in preparation of this, so, you know. <laughs> I love to hear it. Double-weekly. It comes out every two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> That's a thing, right? Yeah. Is bi-weekly, so, uh, twice-weekly, yeah. or...? We have two guests today. We have a returning guest, Greg, who you just heard. Hey, bud. Yes, how's hello. It going? Hey, how's it going, Sean? How's it going, Josh? Good. And with doing Greg, well, we well. talked about drug war in the raid, too. One of my favorite just, like, dudes shooting people <laughs> and fighting and getting shit done episodes oh, yeah. that we've covered. Yeah, I was happy and to hear we... you just talk about drug war out of nowhere on the Friends of Eddie Coyle episode. <laughs> Just bring it up. Remember how good it was? Yeah. It stuck with me. It genuinely did. And we have a new guest today, our friend Diane from the Trustees community. Hey, Diane. How are you? Hey. I'm great. How are you guys? It's (laughs) wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I've been really looking forward to this. There's a lot lot to unpack. There is. There's a... These movies are vastly different from each other. And I'm really excited for this conversation because I think we're just going to about cover every single human emotion that could be covered <laughs> across these two movies. Oh, they are different. I have connections though, between the two, I think, that I found. Thinking oh, hard I can't wait. it. Yeah. I was thinking of a few myself, you know, as far as uh, main character like similarities. <laughs> Awesome. I can't wait to hear it. So we are going to be talking. I orchestrated this Thanksgiving feast and I was looking for people who are passionate about ravenous and who love ravenous. And I stacked the deck in my favor. I didn't (laughs) want to have anybody on the show who was lukewarm on ravenous. I just wanted people here who can appreciate it for what it is. And it just dawned on me today. I got two other Californians on. Oh yeah, which I think really this is a California movie. Oh, it wow. is like through and through, a hundred percent. I didn't even make that connection, but yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It is. I mean, they say obviously it is set in California, but I didn't think of it as a California movie. But I think it is in a lot of ways. Yeah, this screenwriter actually put a lot of little Hollywood things in there, like General Slauson. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Okay. That's See, Slauson Boulevard. Or- 
I wondered because I I work just off of Slauson Boulevard. <laughs> oh, funny. and so it's like, oh, it's just, is that just a weird coincidence? But I didn't even think about that. It's just it's a local Hollywood reference. Yeah. 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 And then after that, uh, we're going to be talking about Midsommar, which was I, I presented Ravenous with a Thanksgiving the Thanksgiving feast theme, and um, the group consensus was Midsommar. And um, so which movie did y'all start with first? Which do you think would lead better to go into the second? Um, let's let's talk this one out, because I think it really could go either way. Uh, I started Midsommar and then went into Ravenous uh, only because I've watched Ravenous recently and I, f- I figured I could flesh out my notes even if I didn't have time to rewatch it. And the director's cut of Midsommar, which is what we all watched, right? We, right. we want directors? Yeah. Okay. Yes, directors. Yeah, was approximately a day and a half long. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> Two hours, 50 minutes, which is why I watched it first. I wanted to make sure I got my heavy homework out of the mm-hmm. way, and then I could have my dessert of Ravenous, which is just like, oh, after Midsommar, Ravenous felt like a light little treat to watch. Yeah, that's exactly it. I was thinking maybe Midsommar first, just because it's like, you go from the heavy material into the light aperitif. I yeah. think typically that's the way we like to go with the show is if there's a dark one and a light one, we start with the dark, except for when Josh suggests that <laughs> It's a Wonderful Life is the, the light happy movie. And that's the movie that like crushes me and leaves me weeping. <laughs> but are they that was the one time joy? we really got that equation wrong. <laughs> Um, I'm cool with doing it that way, starting out, if you want to do the discussion the same way, but I watched them I, the opposite way. I did Ravenous first, and then Midsommar. Same here. Oh, okay. Same here. I've, I, okay. I've seen Midsommar. I had to get a hold of the director's cut, and currently, it's like been pulled from everywhere, I think because they want you to buy this special copy for $45. Yeah. Which is really nice. It's a thirty-five dollars I found very well spent. It's going on my Christmas list. I think this year. Yeah, it's great. It's it's much taller than other Blu-rays. It really makes like an impression when you look at it. Well, and And it's 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 got a booklet of all the different pieces of artwork they they did just for the movie. It's a it's a really nice uh, piece of physical media. Yeah, I'm 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 psyched for it. But for like, it got down to the wire. And I was like, I can't find a copy of this to save my life. And uh, I was like, I know. I reached out to my movie buddy, uh, guy Kelly. And I was like, Kelly, can you get me a director's cut of uh, Midsommar? And he was like, hang on a sec. And then it shows up in my (laughs) email box, the link. And it was like, oh, cool. So thanks, Kelly. it, It is still available on, if you buy the iTunes version. It is on the extras, uh, oh, along they must have with hid them. along with something called Harmony uh, and constructing Halsenglad uh, oh. about the the city, which or the the town, which is a thirty four minute uh, little documentary about building the the village. Yeah, I didn't even it see that on my Blu ray. <laughs> that, <laughs> that feature, I would have watched that. That must be a new thing. Both these movies, the locations alone, oh my god, oh, yeah. I think a great double feature of amazing sets and incredible mountain regions. 
Like, oh, yeah. The backdrops of these movies and the vistas behind everything that's happening and all are, in like, e- beautiful. Both of them are, are Eastern Europe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Ravenous was shot in, like, Slovakia. Yeah. And just, you know, set in Sierra Nevada. Um, but I still feel the California connection. Yes. Regardless. <laughs> I, th- I think it still captures the spirit of the woods out here. Yes. I, I, um, I could... A hundred percent believe that that was Sierra Nevadas in the eighteen hundreds. Because it, I mean, there's yeah. trees. Come on, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> so, Midsummer came out in twenty nineteen. Um, are we are we happy with Samar? Is that how we're going to say? Yeah, it? let's get into okay. it. Yeah, right that's, I mean, yes, I think that's how I pronounce it. Yeah. So, directed and written by Ari Aster. I saw this one in theater. I don't. Wow, where did I see this in theater? It must have been Santa Rosa. I, I don't remember, but um, where did you all see this? Was this a theater viewing for you? What's your experience? Did you see Hereditary in the theater before this? Uh, and like, just what, like, what's, how do you feel about Ari Aster? Let's just kind of wrap Ari Aster all up in that. I haven't seen Hereditary yet, but um, one of my best friends, um, she, she works in the film industry, actually. She loves movies. Um, and she was like super into Midsommar when it came out and kept telling me, you got to see it, you got to see it. And I didn't really get around to it until pretty recently, like a couple of months ago. Ooh, it's so a recent I, favorite then. Yeah. Yeah. I, because I lost my mind when I saw it, I was like, <laughs> it was, I, was, I was obsessed with it for like three straight days. I couldn't stop like looking up articles and telling everyone I know, have you seen this? You know, talk to me about it. I think I've lost my mind. <laughs> it was cool. Awesome. Greg, when did you see this? I saw it in theaters probably the week after it came out. Um, I was a huge fan of Hereditary. I had just heard early hype about Hereditary. Didn't hadn't even watched a trailer. And I convinced my brother to go see it with me in theaters. And we both were blown away. Absolutely loved Hereditary. Um, and so Midsommar came out and I went and saw it solo as soon as I could. This is a period where I think I had a movie pass around this time. I think this is that era. So I may have seen it with movie pass just by myself, just like a, you know, weekday matinee um, and loved it. And then I had to tell my brother, hey, I know you loved Hereditary. So please come see <laughs> Midsommar in theaters <laughs> with me for my second viewing. So I went and like just it's that thing where you're watching something you love so much and I kept looking over at him, trying to gauge his reaction. I'm like, please, like, please, I hope you also love this. Because <laughs> I thought this was so great. And uh, he loved it, too. Yeah, he was a big fan. I feel so insecure when I share something that I love with other people. Yeah. It's, it's... Which is why I stacked the deck in my favor with Ravenous, <laughs> because I was too insecure to not... I, I, I can't defend that movie. To, I just want to share love about that movie. I can't defend it. That that is why ultimately I didn't push harder for a Toby Hooper movie <laughs> to be picked. I was like, I want Sean to have a good time just the yes. whole time. Yeah. I'm grateful. <laughs> I'm grateful. We, there's plenty of time to talk Hooper. Yeah. In like the doldrums of winter, but you know, <laughs> we're, we're going into Thanksgiving. I want to be jovial. I want to be like up, upbeat and stuff. Josh, when did you see Midsummer? Uh, so I had watched Hereditary. I knew nothing about Hereditary, um, and my oldest daughter wanted to go see it, and. She was like 15, maybe, when it came out. Um, and I did not know that it was going to be such strong medicine. 
<laughs> beforehand. <laughs> and uh, it, it might be the first time that I swore in front of her, actually, because when that moment happens, uh, I jumped up, I jumped into my seat and said, oh, fuck. Like, just, yeah. Oh, I made sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Buster. <laughs> that he's trying to censor that was you. Too weird. That was too weird. The universe has been throwing a lot of shit at me this week, and that's another one, man. Uh, and then uh, I held off on watching Midsommar until it came uh, on home video because my girlfriend at the time, my my wife now does not enjoy horror movies or so she says this is her, her big claim uh but i think it's like enticement for me to share something with her like right. she doesn't have anything against them but it's always an event and so now we're watching like cabinet of curiosities and we watch all kinds of stuff but one of the first horror movies i got her to watch was hereditary and then we watched this on two consecutive nights <laughs> Oh, oh no! Yeah, <laughs> that's a real Jeez, test man. Of, uh, of her will there. <laughs> yes, like it's and uh, you know she loves all of the the themes that run through it, especially these two. Um, she always picks up on that kind of stuff, and I'm just like, duh, there's a bear. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> about so, you, Sean? Um, oh, we talked. I you definitely. Talked about. I must have seen this in Santa Rosa. Yeah, I, I lived. I lived here. I, I see so many movies alone at Roxy that I must have just seen it at Roxy, which is my local 14 screen theater that I like. Um, I picture you as having a little. Being, I, I remember thinking this was more of a thinker for me than hereditary, surprisingly, in the sense that like after this one. I had to go back and I had to analyze character interactions and I had to think about conversations that happened in this. And I had to put, I had to like really put them in context of like who these characters are talking to. And, and especially we're talking about Christian. Okay. Yes. We're talking about fucking Christian being a fucking asshole. <laughs> and it took me, I mean, I, I, I noticed it throughout the movie. But the ending really surprised me the first time, and then I rewatched it with the director's cut, and I was like, well, I still don't think he deserves to, like, burn alive, but fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah, they lay it on thick. Like, mm -hmm. it, it is, I think, something that does come out when you watch it multiple times, that it, it gets more comedic how much of a piece of shit he is. It's like, oh, yeah, there's, like, he did 20 more things than I remembered that were just, like, bottom of the barrel human behavior like just garbage person you know he just makes me <laughs> cringe every time he opens his yeah. mouth it's like how are they not and i loved and we'll get to it later i'm sure but i loved when josh calls him on it yes <laughs> <laughs> that was like a, you're like applauding him even though he he too is a bit of a dick so so uh, uh, he's played by christian's played by jack rayner rayner and um Great performance. It's a great asshole performance. And it's not over the top. And I think that's what infuriates me on a rewatch is the subtle, passive aggressive ways that this guy is a fucking asshole. Oh, very, yeah. Very subtle. Um in, in the beginning anyway. Um did you notice that like in the early 
film uh, scenes that are set in New York. Uh, the filming, they're always shooting him indirectly. Like we don't get a close up of him until they're fighting. <laughs> you know, like. Uh, he's he's shot through mirrors a lot, yeah. which is like such such a, a like such a visual way to present passive aggression. Yes. Oh, and by the way, I invited my girlfriend <laughs> to yes. to, our, to our Europe with us. She's not gonna accept, or she's not gonna go. She did say yes, but she's <laughs> not going. <laughs> I love that, that line. Okay, that scene where. She's demanding an apology after she finds out that this trip is happening. And he turns it on her that, no, you ruined the surprise. Oh, God. First of all, nobody surprises anyone with foreign travel with less than two (laughs) weeks notice. How many young people have their visas that are, like, in date? I don't have a visa right now, okay? Yeah. It would take me weeks to foreign travel. But yeah. then the fact that she ends up apologizing to him at the end of this conversation made me just pissed off. It, it grosses me out. And he does that so often where he he plays victim in a way and she totally buys it every time, you know, um, until he actually is the victim and she doesn't save him, which is, <laughs> I think, great. <laughs> That's. That's a good read. True. Yeah. So we'll get to the ending, but I, I've. How often have you seen a movie that, like Jake Taylor in Major League, points to little left bleachers <laughs> and calls it shot and presents you with an art panel that depicts essentially 80% of the movie? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they do this multiple times where they, they show you visually kind of basically what's going to happen next. Like, they also have the series of pictures, like, detailing the love potion or, like, the love ritual that she does, too. Ooh, where it a, just tells you immediately, this like, hey, this is... love potion. Yeah, this is what's Ooh. coming up. Yeah. Uh, the color of that guy's drink compared to everyone else's drink on the table? <laughs> yeah. I was, like, uh, when I first saw that tapestry, I was... It made me really nervous because I wasn't understanding that she was trimming her pubes, I was like, is she dabbing herself in the vagina? I don't want to yeah. see that. I don't want to see a girl do that to her hoo-ha. No. <laughs> <laughs> so. So, Josh, when you first watched this movie, were you able to process any of that panel? Because I feel like it was such an inundation of information for me on the first viewing that I didn't I didn't remember like anything specifically from that tapestry. Today on this viewing, I actually paused it and took about two minutes to just really soak it all in. But before this, I feel like the movie shows everything that it's going to be, but on a first watch, it's too much to remember. Um, the one thing that I did, I didn't catch it. Elizabeth caught it. I have to give her the credit for this. Uh, because on the right-hand side of the panel, you see the maypole that they dance around. And she pointed out that maypole because it looks like a dick and balls. And she (laughs) thinks that's funny. (laughs) Because she dealt with middle schoolers for like 12 years straight. So anything that looks like a phallus, she points at and laughs. And uh, so I did notice that. And we we called it, caught it later. So today what I picked up on, there's some 
gargantuanly fucked up things in this. So in the winter death panel, you have the skull of death breathing ice snow down on the scene, and there's umbilical cords going from the parents to the two children, and then there's gas cords going yeah. to the mouth of the parents and the one child, and they get tangled with the umbilical cords, and it it's just fucked up. <laughs> yeah, that was that was an element I had never noticed before this viewing. As I, I did catch that, I was like, "Oh, that's like what is about to happen, <laughs> like right now." Yeah. Also, in the there's a shot where they're all walking in the forest, depicting the shroom trip, and in that one, all the trees are shroom shaped. Mm -hmm. Ooh. Ah. That psychedelic element adds so much to this movie too. I think that's a really uh, fascinating factor in all this. Let's let's talk psychedelics. Who <laughs> who here has done mushrooms or acid or anything? Because I think this movie does a really fucking good job representing the the visuals. Yeah, uh, I will answer by saying like both questions at once and both things at once and say yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it does a great job, and I have. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the thing I remember the most from the the few times. Uh, is that like it really captures the texture of things when you see a close-up of someone's face in this when a character is tripping and you can make out all these micro details in the texture of their faces or just objects or trees and things like that um i didn't get, i didn't even notice that that was that was what i caught uh or you know what really kind of sealed it in for me is like oh this is getting it right was the exact texture of material in this i was background focused where That's, i mean it's both when yeah. you don't when you're on Sykes, when you're on Sykes, you don't focus on anything, and that's when everything kind of moves in fluidity and motion. And um, that one of the biggest things that Christian did that pisses me off in this movie is rushes her to do mushrooms. There, you have yeah. all the time in the world. You haven't even put your bags down. You haven't gotten your bearings. Set and setting. You gotta get your mind... <laughs> I'm sorry, hold on. I gotta take care of this dog. I think he needs to go out or something. Aw. I feel like I should have done shrooms in preparation for this uh, podcast. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was never brave enough to go into psychedelics because I've always been too scared of a bad trip. Um, it's still nerve-wracking even having done it previously <laughs> it's still for me that's why it, that's why it's been it was a long time ago thing yeah you know? well I've I have epilepsy and when I was younger I I'd had seizures and I just would do anything to keep from having them again and I didn't like the idea of being out of control of what I'm thinking um, or seeing so I, I just kind of didn't go there but I, I enjoyed this representation of them kind of gives you a good feel yeah. for it <laughs> it's it's accurate it definitely gets you uh it gets the visuals down for sure and just like the disorienting feeling yeah that's uh having bipolar uh i didn't know for years what was up with me but i knew something was up <laughs> uh <laughs> and i was always scared to be out of control uh, and I think in retrospect, probably a good idea. And then once I got on meds, they were like, yeah, you shouldn't do 
anything fun, essentially. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's been uh, pretty dry <laughs> for the last few years. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, understandably. But on the other hand, if I do forget to take some meds, uh, my blood pressure drops really far and things start to get woozy that way. So I've got that going for me. <laughs> So you can you can get you know yeah you, you call it expand your consciousness in a different way yeah yeah it's my legs and arms start getting longer sometimes <laughs> it's great I'm sorry my dog's very old and uh, he needs a lot of help these days Aww. set and setting you got to get your mindset right and you got to <laughs> get your setting right which means mindset when you first arrive to a new place you're stressed out it's weird you don't even know where you're gonna sleep that night. You don't even Not speak the same language as the people there. Yeah. Like in the setting. <laughs> don't trip near people who, when you wander off, are going to be cackling with laughter in your direction. Bad setting. <laughs> These are things that you don't do when tripping. And this is why the what's the Joker character's name? He's depicted with a jester hat. Oh, Mark. He's Mark? the most annoying of all the friends. Yeah, Mark. 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 Fucking Mark. Fuck that guy. Oh, yeah, Mark. am I right? Mark pisses me off more than I think any of the others. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's I mean, terrible. it's like, it's the, it's perfectly cast, too. I really like that actor. I think he, uh, Will Poulter, great. right? Yeah. Great job. He, he nails it. I mean, they're going for so annoying that you are very happy when he is let off to be killed. <laughs> what? Let's, can we talk about his death, though? It's kind of underwhelming. Jump forward to him. Where did the leather face come from in this movie where somebody's wearing his face as a mask? Well, when... Where did that come from? uh, Apparently, it was a thing. Uh, (laughs) Ari Aster uh, had one of the... You know, when he researched all the, you know, weird Nordic myths and... Uh, customs and well not customs but almost mostly myths and stories of vikings and things like that um loosely translated it it is they are necro pants <laughs> whoa I i'm sorry what I, that I, term? I wish i could remember the uh i wish i could remember the actual uh norse term but it was it it translated to necro pants and i just loved that so much i was like that's going to be my new word Oh, yeah. So, I'm disappointed they didn't use that in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> know, right? But I love that. That's incredible. Yeah, that whole scene with the, uh, you know, uh, Mark face. <laughs> mm-hmm. I had to rewatch that and then look it up later online to determine exactly what was happening. Like, I, because you also hear the moaning at the same time from yeah. mm-hmm. the, the Oracle, I guess, in the corner. Right, and Ruben. Ruben. Yeah. yeah, and it took me a while to put the, oh, okay, we don't really see him at all, but we're hearing him reacting. And uh, right. so that was, I, I was like, so who's that? Who's wearing Mark right now? And I figure it's Ulf, <laughs> right? The guy who got the guy who did him. Yeah. <laughs> to mm-hmm. pee on my ancestors. Um, I think so. Uh, also, too, Sean, you said it there, like, what is, why that scene happens is that it is a, like, a very explicit Texas Chainsaw reference. Um, you know, with the, even sure. with the being a concussive hammer kill and then the twitching of the body afterwards, 
this movie has so much in common with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, just the basic plot of these friends on vacation being lured into this, like, you know, isolated community, essentially, um, you know, being brought for nefarious purposes to eventually be killed. And it's about that sort of what Texas, the, the setting of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that isolation of this deep in the heart of Texas. But this, like they say it, this is like way, way north of, any, you know, a major metropolitan city. Nobody has been in contact with these people in a long time. There's no documentaries or books about them. They're completely isolated. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea of what people will be, like, turn into in that kind of extreme isolation, too. Mm-hmm. I love that connection. Yeah. And, and, and they- hey, you can also apply that directly to Ravenous <laughs> as well. That's one of the connections here. Wonderful. Yeah, um, isolation for sure. So what do you guys think about the... I mean, one of the articles that I've read about this was um, uh, talks about the sunlight. Like the thesis statement is the, the never ending sunlight that drowns everything except for one scene in the director's cut. I did yes. call that one out as soon as I saw it, but what do you guys think about that? Like moving from the dark uh, wintry world to this warm summer world and the never ending light. Think of the title too, just like the summer season, right? It's it's the middle of summer. It's typically uh it's gonna be it, it evokes like a brighter, sunnier sort of feeling and aesthetic. And I think um summer is the a time after spring, plants have bloomed are and are growing, right? And uh just like all forms of life, it's all sustained by you know, uh <laughs> by the dead. You know, we get you know, plants take nutrients from from dead matter, right? And grow bigger. And this is kind of a movie about uh, death and rebirth and things like that. So I think it, it, that's, that's for some reason, that's what it brings to mind for me. Yeah. For me, it was, it's definitely, you get that feeling of, you know, summer is, you know, time of, of new life. Well, it's, it's sort of, that's spring really, but um but really, the thing that struck me is we don't actually ever see the sun, you know, the sun itself. There's one shot where you get it behind the clouds. Mm-hmm. And that's in the director's cut, I think. Um, oh, wow. But the I, I entire time, you don't see any actual sun. Um, so Did you see the sun in the tapestry? It looks like a <laughs> lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> Which is ironic to call the sun a lunatic. But it has like bulging red, like crazy granite, like fiendish look on its face, like it's going to burn the world. <laughs> well, it might yet. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I thought that was interesting that we never actually see it. So, and all these kind of terrifying things are happening under sunlight as opposed to the nat, or, you know. I was going to say natural death. It wasn't natural at all, uh, as opposed to the opening scene <laughs> of uh, just winter death, murder, suicide, you know. And then we, we end with sort of a murder-suicide as well. So I like that from our perspective, we, along with um, Florence Pugh, um, Danny when she sleeps through the three hours of darkness or whatever. Mm. So we, as the audience also are, we miss our chance to experience any kind of darkness. Mm -hmm. 
And so this daylight is just punishingly present. And, yeah. You know, when they're tripping at 9 p.m. And the dumb guy's like, how could that be? That can't be. <laughs> I mean, to be broad daylight at 9 p.m. when tripping would be pretty fucking freaky, honestly. Because I have had the thought when tripping during the night of like, what if the sun just didn't come up? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of that deep thought. That's, it's, that's it's all also, there is to that one. <laughs> I mean, it's also relatable even when you're not tripping, though. Like, um, I, I've traveled through Europe, and when you are in certain parts of the world, the sun doesn't go down until very, very late at night. I remember it being like 11 p.m. in Ireland, and looking at and seeing sunlight and blue sky, and it really does melt your brain even without psychedelics. Has anyone ever been to Sweden? Not Sweden, no. Nope. I would like to go. I, I have not traveled at all, aside from going to Ireland when I was 14 with my family or something. Uh, I feel like the Scandinavian countries would be close to the top of my list just to go hiking in the woods. Oh, yeah. They seem absolutely gorgeous. I, I, I do know. I have... Um... I have family that's Swiss, that's close enough, and they go back and visit their Swiss family quite a bit, and they always send back the most amazing photos and and stuff like that. It's, yeah, I definitely want to try that at some point. name is Robinson? (laughs) (laughs) Close. I'm glad you said that, because I was was like, don't make a Swiss family Robinson joke. (laughs) Oh, Diane, the the floor is open for bad jokes, please. I, I will set the floor... I will set the low bar, and anything you say <laughs> will definitely be above that. So don't worry about that. Um, I did want to talk about that one scene in Darkness, the one night mm-hmm. scene that they add in the director's cut. I loved that scene. Um, and on the second watch, it had uh, another just kind of eerie layer to it, as I really kind of you- like... I'm sorry, are you talking about the kid by yeah. the pond side? Yeah. The kid ceremony. <laughs> so set it up for people who have only seen the theatrical, please. Yeah, so it's a sudden scene at night. Like, it's after, I can't remember exactly what what Danny and um, Christian are arguing about, but in the middle of their, of their argument, somebody kind of just is like, hey, come on, there's something happening in the woods. And this is after we've had the cliff jumping ceremony. Um, <laughs> and so you hear about... I, I can only imagine if I had seen the director's cut first, this would have been much more tense. Um, it is a little, a little kind of stepped on, having seen the theatrical version first and kind of knowing, you know, what does and doesn't happen. But they get told about another ceremony, so there's this tension that you don't, you think maybe somebody else is going to be killed because their last ceremony ended with two people committing ritualistic suicide, and the the ceremony is them telling some story about it's like a witch demanding a sacrifice right is basically what it kind of boils down to yeah um, like the little story they're like telling that. yeah, like yeah they're like, did we not give enough maybe we didn't give enough yes. already what it's like it's like do? their goddess yeah <laughs> and right they decorate the kid like a christmas tree yes I, oh yeah yes. that's a that's a very important thing too um but essentially a, one child steps up and says i'm gonna sacrifice myself I'm going to die so that the entire village can live. And if you ha- if you are watching this for the first time, you, like Danny, might think, I'm about to watch a child get killed in front of me. Like, it's a very real possibility now, because we saw that they they include actual human death 
and their religious practices. Um, but it ends up being like just a play, the whole town chants. So they're brave enough and the kid gets to live. But it just got me thinking about how that is like the first step of indoctrination in this cult is getting kids to act out these like these types of practices and rituals and be able to like come forward and say, yes, like I will die for the benefit of the group. I'm going to give up my myself, you know. That's like grooming. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's really good. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it's that. The, it's the beginning of their grooming. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I see... The only connection I had made was more of the, uh, that dumb adage of like, if the witch drowns, it wasn't a witch. But if the witch survives <laughs> the drowning, then it is a witch. In uh, like that whole backwards logic. But I, I love that take of the indoctrin- indoctrination that yeah. suicide will be inevitable unless you die it's honorable luckily right yeah 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 exactly yeah and it's kind of the heroism that they are trying to get the children and others to accept is like Mm -hmm. you'll be a hero this is an awesome thing you're gonna like you know be our 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 savior you know exactly yeah and that christmas tree element too is really i'm glad you you caught that because it's like I think it's a scene before that um, Christian has started to like interview the the people of the cult for his. Well, his not not thesis. just the people. He yeah. interviews the cute redhead girl. Yeah, exactly. That's been yes, that's the first him, person he talks to. Yeah, first, and he's not under the spell yet. No, exactly. <laughs> to be clear, yeah. So, but he um, he's asking her like, "How do you guys grieve?" And she's as she's decorating a Christmas tree, which is like a celebration or it's like, it's like a i think we use around the celebration of the birth of christ like a famous martyr and everything and like i've always kind of heard that the christmas tree in some way is supposed to represent the cross or something um but as we decorate a christmas tree it says that we both grieve and celebrate which is also what we do in christianity right like we celebrate the life of this martyr who gave himself up for us and then you immediately have a play about a similar situation so it's also kind of going back to like the foundations of western civilization being built on these sorts of ideas well and um, also the the uh the appropriation of yeah of pagan you know winter solstice practices you know that's the i think that's where the christmas tree comes from is like oh well we we need to make this christmas now so we're just gonna <laughs> keep the tree but we're gonna work in a whole bunch of you know jesus stuff into it if that's cool with you guys <laughs> so yeah it's, <laughs> it's it's kind of like coming back to the to the original uh winter solstice uh meaning pagan meaning i guess um but yeah that's it seems like they 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 touch on all of that a lot and it's so it's jarring too because we recognize things that we grew up with in uh you know judeo-christian life <laughs> here in america and then we for you know there it's kind of jarring and then reminds us like oh this is all built atop of pagan culture so we've talked a little bit about the the psychedelics and we talked a little bit about the disorienting nature of the of the the light um what about danny and she seems to be having disassociative episodes. Um, that that full body thing 
that she does and the the tension and then the exhaling that's something that I am very familiar with but the way that it's transferred and you see everyone else breathe out that <sighs> that they do yeah like yes yes <laughs> what is what is the the connection here Diane what is this connection that is happening I, I, between I think they're coming in they're they're syncing with one another and so uh-huh. like when when they teach her to do that it's like you're part of the you know it's almost like the, all the individuals make up one being and that's why they they feel everybody's pain or at least they pretend like they do sometimes i feel like it's almost like mimic yeah you know it doesn't that feel. is another thing that's that that is another aspect that kind of got comedic for me in this watch is the idea that, yeah, we're sharing each other's pain. So, you know, us like screaming and beating our heads into the ground is the same as you burning alive in this <laughs> thing. It's almost mockery of like, yeah, I feel your pain, like, but you can, you're not actually feeling anywhere near as much pain as they are. My first watch through, I did wonder, especially in that scene where she is in the white dress and she sees Christian having sex with a girl and they bring her into the cabin and she has that complete breakdown and everyone starts having the breakdown with her. I did on my first watch initially think it was mimicry as mockery. Oh, but then the more I thought about it, like to be seen, I, I recently watched portrait of a lady on fire and love that. for anybody to actually put the effort in to see you, and to think of who you are as a person and what you're feeling and what you're going through. And so that this whole community does this and they're not afraid of it. And they not only come for her, but they go through it with her. Whereas in that one scene where she's completely breaking down in this way in the winter, Christian's holding her, but he's only holding her. He doesn't seem to be experiencing the, any emotion with her he's not going through it with her he's just holding her and so yeah you could question the validity of it but i understand especially her coming from the relationship that she is and everything that she's gone through why this cult would absolutely pull her in yeah that scene with the women there's a lot to be oh sorry go ahead (laughs) yeah uh there's a there's a lot to be said for this movie's like very convincing portrayal of like um a a cult that people could get into and espousing ideas that do appeal to people who are feeling maybe isolated and lonely mm-hmm. um which is what cults are great at preying on and so i uh and when you also factor in one of my favorite aspects of the director's cut that was added back in um you have josh's book about the hidden nazi language right <laughs> of the uthark or something like that yeah, i think yeah. is what it's called yeah. The runes, yeah which is such a big addition into this to even make that connection lightly between nazism and these people like it, it adds so much to like the context of this movie and what they're doing mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting because i was really very surprised on this viewing like the fuck is that guy doing carrying around a nazi book yeah, and all these scholars who are carrying around Mein Kampf and stuff, but saying that they're doing it in the name of uh, academia. He's yeah, it, it does a lot for Josh's character too, for me, because if if he is aware of what this cult is and what this kind of like what these rituals and what this uh, 
sort of like, you know, um, what this culture kind of leads to, that kind of changes, like, colors his character a bit differently. Like, is he here to explicitly, like, reveal, you know, hey, there's this essentially the secret fascist cult living here in Sweden. <laughs> and, like, this is kind of like an expose on it, you know? Well, we see that he is well aware of um, the suicide of the older people that packed in that ritual. Yeah. And he's smug and arrogant about the fact that he knows and he's not going to warn his friends. He's not going to warn his friend who just lost her entire family to murder-suicide. Yeah. He's not going to warn her. He's going to let her come to the crowd and witness a double suicide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It He's, doesn't make him a better person, this reveal that, of like, he may know about some of this cult's habits because, they, yes, he does not warn anybody. It makes him and worse. He, it makes it him makes worse because he, he actively brings them into like a, a, a deadly situation. And I think Danny says it best in, in one of the argument scenes that's added in. But she says, like, you guys are a bunch of opportunist, opportunistic grad students. <laughs> yeah. Like, and, you know, why do you think they allowed you in here? Yeah. Josh, did this remind you these characters of um, Virginia Madsen and her friend in Candyman? Oh, definitely. I mean, anytime you have a grad student in a horror movie, like <laughs> that's that has to be the connection. Or when I hear about grad students like overstepping their bounds in general, uh, which is you know quite a common thing in academia itself, um, and the exploitation that there's the fine line that everyone is treading in this where it, there are scenes where I feel like, um, uh, the, the students, the, the visitors are all kind of colonizers. Then there are scenes where I'm like, okay, they're being taken advantage of the whole time. They're being set up for the slaughter the whole time. And like, you never quite know which way to go. And I feel like the same way in Candyman, where is she the key to him? Is she actually his reborn love? Is she going to be the savior in the end? Or is she just an excuse for all of this to continue? Uh, and I feel like those threads kind of go through both things, actually. Yeah. And he shuts the conversation down with that point. <laughs> just um, thinking sorry. about it for a second. You know, about, yeah. uh, like... Just backing up a little bit to the scene with the women and Danny crying. The first, this scene really blew my mind. Um, it, the first watching of it. I was just, you know, I was just watching on a stream at home. And um, I was like, this is beautiful. Uh, I don't know, I, I, because every single time she's had to cry, she's felt like crying. She's had to stifle it, go in the bathroom. And like isolate herself, yeah. And cover her mouth. And here she is yeah. embraced by a circle of women. And maybe they are just making her sounds, but they're trying. They're there for her, you know. And they like, they're basically, whereas Christian was like, He's like in a Seinfeld episode, like, damn, I was about to break up with her and then her whole family died. Now, I, now she's sobbing in my lap and we're never going to have sex again. You know, like it was like that. He, it, he, you can see it on his face. You know, he's like, oh, shit, how long do I have to do this for? And um, uh, 
but here are these women who she's never really had much of an exchange with, but they are accepting her and her pain and her and experiencing her crying. And I was like, who doesn't want that at one point in time or another? You know, <laughs> like, can we all just sit and cry? <laughs> <laughs> yes yes we can <laughs> i mean there's very few uh, so moments what do you think of sorry go ahead no 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 go ahead dan uh, just just that there's very few moments in life where you feel that that level of pain and those people that do embrace you during it they're the ones that are you know your chosen family or maybe your real family i don't know um and you kind of get that feeling then with her. It's like, oh, they're not going to kill her. Because that entire movie, I've been like waiting for the Wicker Man one-two punch or whatever. And it turned out to be a breakup movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if... I don't remember what my suspicion was if if Danny was going to be exalted or to be the victim Wicker Man style. As soon as That's she won the point. May Queen. Well, yeah, because we never really know what happens to all the past May Queens, which leads me to a question, an honest to God question about. So this is a Midsommar fe- festival, and it, we gather that it happens every year. But this particular thing with the sacrifice at the end only happens every 90 years. But, right. But the timeline in this is kind of odd. Yeah, I was confused. I was like, because yeah, so... Pele also mentions that his parents died on a fire, right? Which I always is, is thought is supposed to mean that his parents were sacrificed. But if it only happens every ninety years, that that's not possible. Like exactly, unless he is that old. At some point, I thought I heard the word nine years, but then later, I think I heard ninety. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, I, I think it's I definitely too... ninety. Yeah, I, I I was also confused by, um, by the timeline here. But what do we think of Pel Pele as Pele. basically the the honeypot out there? <laughs> I think he, I mean selling selling a utopia to naive grad students, and then you know receiving the acclaim. And getting a special headdress because he brought the most victims to camp, <laughs> and he yeah. got the new makeup, uh, the new blood. So, <laughs> oh yeah, um, it's. In- I, I think. I mean, he's this movie's version of the hitchhiker from Texas Chainsaw, making that connection too, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and I think that uh, that actor is very good at being at being convincing. You actually believe that he he has sinister motives but you don't get like a sinister feel from him ever you know like you he genuinely believes that they are his friends and this is just his culture and this is what you do and he's he is happy to bring them here and subject them to this there's a shitload of foreshadowing in this movie and at one point he literally tells christian don't forget all the swedish women you can impregnate in jail that is his (laughs) first line in the movie it's the first thing he says when you see him on screen yeah. Interesting. <laughs> this this movie that. continually just like points to the bleachers, calls it shot, mm-hmm. and I love that it still goes through with it, and I'm still caught off guard by it. Mm-hmm. I think it, yeah, I think that's one of the things about it is that on the one hand, it's very subtle, and on the other hand, it's totally not subtle at all, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> as far as the rituals go. Um, yeah. 
It's you incredibly know? in your face. I mean, even to the point too. I mean, it's also in your face just with like you don't ever need to see like Danny's ghost family pop into her brain to remind you of what she's been through. Yeah. But now they're sort of going to do it and show you the image of them like with hoses taped to their faces multiple times to make the direct correlation, you know. Did you see the sister's face in the trees behind yeah. what, when she's yes. being carried? I love that. I didn't notice it the first time. I had to have somebody point it out to me. And then I, I was there's like, a very how did similar, I miss it? You know? <laughs> there's a very similar scare in, in, in um, Hereditary where he hides a, a pretty scary image like, oh. in plain sight, basically, where if you look for it, you could see it, but it's not, always, it's not immediately obvious. Yeah. Yeah, I did like so, the 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 point where she sees her mother walking past her when everyone's greeting her for or congratulating her for winning making. Mm-hmm. And uh it, but she doesn't make eye contact. She just moves past her. That scene so, where where she's at the when after she gets creme queen and everyone's sitting at the table and Christian is uh, takes a seat. I love the visual of everyone's in white and then he's in this like what is he? He's wearing something really ugly. Dark gray t-shirt. It's like a dark, yes. It he's looks really awful compared to everyone stains. else who looks so pristine. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. But right. uh, special shout out to the, the guy that just wants to fuck with him and claps in his face for no reason. <laughs> oh, that just, was... just to psych him out. <laughs> that's not cool, man. I was really like, that's not cool. Don't do that to people that are tripping. Come on. But it's like... Christian. You know, it's happening to Christian. I know though, it's so. Christian. I loved still, that. I was laughing. People who are tripping are like as vulnerable <laughs> as babies. I think like, they do a great to job. Treat them as such. They did a great job on this. Even though it's a cult, I do think they do a wonderful job of differentiating the different cult members too mm. um like you have the lead guy that kind of greets them at mm. first and he makes the joke about wearing like the girly robes mm-hmm. uh you have the guy that's that's um you said his name earlier but the one we think is wearing mark's face later <laughs> yes I uh, we have him cause... we can identify with we have that's hit, the like, guy the, who gets mad leader. about the uh the tree yes. being put yeah. on yeah let's talk yeah. about the the tree scene they're standing there watching the ashes of the two burned people that just got cremated, literally just finished cooking on the fire. And the goddamn Mark walks right over to that exact spot, and that's where he decides to take a piss. Exactly. <laughs> well, I feel like that's reflective of how wrapped up in his own needs and own thoughts. Like, he didn't, he probably didn't even put that together that those were the ashes of the people. He probably thought, Oh, that looks like, you know, somebody's been dumping ashes out there. Okay, cool. I'll just piss here. <laughs> you know? I'll, 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 I'll pee the ashes so they don't start a fire. <laughs> Not I'm reading the room yeah. at all. So. That's yeah. My favorite part of that is he like is vaping two minutes later after being yelled at. The guy is vaping <laughs> at the most disrespectful times, and it's perfect. And Christine is laughing. He didn't He's learn the first rule. <laughs> What's that? Oh, dude, when Christian, when Christian is laughing... As Mark is getting screamed at by the guy, just the this movie is like so over the top, fuck Christian that I feel like I don't even need to say it anymore. Yeah, he's uh. he's consistently the worst. I don't know, uh, you know, we've watched how many movies about about killers, about sociopaths, about like if you put Christian in a room with Travis Bickle and gave me one bullet. <laughs> I, but is it because he 
is he ever truly confrontational in this? Because we see even as he deals with um, who's the academic guy from um the Mike Sure show from the Josh. Good Place, the Good Place, <laughs> uh, Josh, yeah. Josh. Yeah. Because we see how he deals with Josh is basically when like when Pell is like, oh, I could I could get that research for you. Christian's like, oh yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great if you could get that for me too. And he just like <laughs> fucking piggybacks on this thing. Yep. And and then when Josh actually wants to collaborate, he like chews him out. He's like, oh well, now you want to help? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's such a baby, you know, like an uh toddler man, you know, basically. <laughs> Christian. So. <laughs> Was, is everybody brought here, are they brought here specifically to be sacrificed, or are they brought to see if they need to be sacrificed, or if they could possibly join up? Because they talk about that there's been inbreeding, and that they try to bring in outsiders, which is, you know, not only foreshadowing uh, Christian, Christian and a teenage girl, which I did not catch until this time, Yes, it's even Same. more upsetting. Yeah, yeah, she's she's young with her mom right uh, there. <laughs> oh God! Holding her hand. I'm sorry. Uh, we, we, well, I do jumping. think there's. <laughs> jumping Go ahead. ahead. Sorry, Go ahead, no, no, no. I that, I was jumping a little okay. far ahead. The, there's that couple, the the side couple, the sexy hot 22 year old couple mm-hmm. that are <laughs> on the side of this movie. <laughs> And I do get the feeling that they are trying to indoctrinate them into it. I don't think they want any of these dipshit Americans aside from maybe Danny. But they do seem to be maybe into that couple. They they want... Um, I think part of it is that this, there's a system of eugenics in place in this, right? They're kind of selectively choosing which people to bring in and, and breed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it's no... It's not uh, nothing that the one person they choose is like a white, you know, fair-skinned, fair-haired. Yes, exactly. So it's possible, I think, that Mark, if he hadn't been such a disrespectful dipshit, may have also been selected for this. I think the other guys had no chance. I think they are purely there for sacrifice. Because I mean the, the the that young couple they don't I mean I guess they they do yell out at the at their ritualistic suicide but they don't do anything else really like you know offensive mm-hmm. like on the level of Mark and yet they or get Josh. killed anyway leave, right yes or Josh yeah they're just hitting the panic switch and yes. trying to leave um mm-hmm. yeah I feel but like- I think I get the feeling that they were they were doomed either way. And and they're not letting anybody leave, basically. So I don't yeah. think they would bring anybody in that they weren't willing to um, off in some way. I mean, if Danny had insisted on leaving when she originally wanted to. Um, yeah. You know, I think that's why Pele took her aside and talked her down because he was like, damn, no, you're, you're my girl. <laughs> you know, like, so he, <laughs> that's a great point. Yeah. I feel like oh, that I didn't was even a good think thought. that he's trying to talk her out of execution. Yes. He's yeah. trying to save her in his own weird way. I mean, that's something that the director's cut does really well is that it, it makes Danny much smarter because she brings up that point of like, we just watched these people commit suicide in front of us. They don't want people to know about this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like, so why was they brought us scene. here? Yeah, and it makes her so much of a more of a smarter character. Yeah, because I feel like I had seen some criticism of the theatrical cut, talking about her motivations not entirely tracking. Like some people didn't fully buy it. 
mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I think that scene actually fleshes her out and actually makes her a more perceptive character. Yeah, I don't recall the, the theatrical cut specifically, but I do recall after watching the directors the first time thinking, this is a more fleshed out version of the movie. And I think it's pretty easy to say this is the complete version and in, in, in an easy recommendation for me. Yeah. I, it doesn't I think change it... anything. It doesn't change the tone of the movie. It just adds context and none of it feels overtly like superfluous and excessive. Yeah. It makes the community more fleshed out and more believable. And it really helps not just Danny, but Josh's character, because most of what is reinserted is like this thesis subplot. And uh, he becomes a far more interesting character to me. And and I think William Jackson Harper's performance gets better to me, too, Mm -hmm. uh, with this this added material. You didn't even know how to use JSTOR. I had to show you. (laughs) (laughs) I I I wrote that down. That is so funny. I think he's the standout amongst the crew of dudes. I think his performance really stands out. And it's, it's pretty close to what he's channeling in The Good Place. But he's really fucking good at it. And it's that, like... It's that controlled yet bewildered rage that he has about like Christian yeah. coattailing him on this research project and everything. But he's trying, you can see him reining it in all the time, even as he lets it kind of loose. I mean, that's what was interesting to me too, as he, as we find out that he knows much more about this, these people, right? Through his research and like through his knowledge of history. Like when he learns that they have a selective inbreeding program to produce a disabled person to be their leader, like you're right, he is trying to rein in his judgment at that point. I feel you could see his reaction to it, you know, where he's immediately like, Can I take pictures of this? Because this is insane. And they pick up on that and kill him for it. <laughs> um, but I think that that reined in nature where he's trying to remain objective as like an outside observer to all this, but the cult gets so crazy that he can't like hide his sort of like you know his shock i guess yeah i feel like josh was like this embodiment of uh a very real part of academia um that is arrogant and i mean not not to be like okay that's my broad generalization um but i (laughs) i feel like it's like a little bit of true academia is you have to have that that competitive nature, um, that you know, hyper intelligence, and being aware of that hyper intelligence at all times. And um, uh, I think he's he he knows a lot more than he ever lets on ab- about his roommates, especially or his friends or whatever they are. <laughs> I got the feeling they were roommates. But um, I think a few of them definitely are. Yeah. Yeah. Just because. You can tell there there is kind of judgment going on behind his eyes at all times, but you can never really quite. It's not obvious. It's very subtle and restrained. And then when he lets loose, it's kind of like, finally, you know, (laughs) we get to see (laughs) some human in him. But but it's just rage at somebody taking advantage of his hard work and ideas yes a threat to his credibility possibly yeah 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 like oh great now how am i how am i gonna do this thing that i've been working towards my entire uh graduate time and you're just gonna jump on in (laughs) 
be like, me too. <laughs> That's, he basically, he calls him out for being a dilettante. Uh, <laughs> like, and I, I love that. Like it is the, uh, it, it's the least relatable thing to, I think the masses, right? Like, the actually doing graduate work and being at that level. But I think everybody can understand that feeling that he has <laughs> the actual, <laughs> like, Oh, you just got here and you're trying to one up me and you suck so bad. And <laughs> the being called out on it. I think everyone wants to do that at some point in time in their lives. Just be able to like point to somebody and say like, you don't deserve the things you have. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, so that was a nice I got the moment. sense. Greg, go ahead, go ahead, Josh. You had mentioned in the text thread um, that there's somebody that seems more likable with the addition of one scene, one of the dudes. Um, specifically, what were you talking about there? Because I was kind of wondering. Yeah, that was, that was Josh. Okay. Because I, I do think it's, it's specifically his knowledge of the potential Nazi connection. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me, I'm like, oh, he is aware of what their practices are. Or of the implications of what this stuff, and and maybe he he is trying to sort of like you know drop an expose on this sort of thing persisting, you mm. know, in what we consider the civilized world. I guess like maybe there is an altruistic element to his work. Yeah, there's. Okay, it seems like there was also a, a little theme, not a little, but you know, kind of an underlying theme of uh, xenophobia um isolated communities and i wonder too if it is at all um supposed to be reflective of the world we're living in now where everybody's afraid of the other you know and and here are some americans coming into an other and um you know it's it's almost like cashing in on the fear um but at the same time calling it out a little I don't know. Yeah. I, I know I think ideas. Ari Aster has said that part of this movie's like the themes come from uh, in Sweden. I think at the time this came out, I, I don't know much about current Swedish politics, but I guess there was like a sort of, you know, up and coming like conservative <laughs> movement going on in Sweden. And there's a scene where they're driving into the village and it's, it's the upside down shot. Oh, it's a lot the like sign? the shining shot following the car down the road, but it's upside down. Yeah. But that sign, that banner they drive under, has some sort of slogan on it that in Swedish is very akin to, like, you know, make America great again. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, that, associating that with these people, you know, hey, we just want to keep things the way it was, the way they are in our happy, like, you know, racially segregated society, essentially. Yeah, and we're going to just pick and choose who we take in. Uh, yeah. you know, as outside breeding. I was just, I was surprised that Christian or Josh, whoever was asking about the breeding, um, didn't question them when they bring up that they bring in outsiders every now and then to keep the bloodline, um, you know, to keep yeah genetics okay. And... Um, I was I was kind of surprised that nobody was like, "Oh, really? Tell me more." <laughs> no, nobody would have been like, "But I'm an outsider." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, that might have been the scene where that might have, you know, something. Ha- I want to say something happened like that to distract them. 
um, at that moment. Isn't yeah, that he's the, talking. The, isn't that the arrogance of the scholar, though, to be in this situation and not see themselves as the other as they are listening yeah. to what happens to the other? Yes. That's good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> good observation. <laughs> Uh, the dance they do too around the maypole they say is in defiance of the dark one which I I, I don't know if it's an accident that it's after Josh's murder it's like oh we're going to dance in defiance of the dark one now um, after he's been killed I have no idea I don't know if that's purposeful Ah. that is saying anything but I did did kind of piece that together just watch like the order of events there so he gets pulled off by a young woman out into the forest and then the next thing we see, do we see him get bashed on the head, or is Josh? We, yeah. Oh, Josh. We do see him. Josh. The, or Mark? He's the jester. He's the he's the Mark. Josh is the. Jo- Josh is um. Oh, Josh is he gets bashed in the cathedral. Yes. Yeah. When yeah. He's stealing the the pages. Yeah. He he's the twitcher. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's a line from Dawn of the Dead, which I just watched. <laughs> oh, sorry, the remake. I didn't even the get. Re- oh, wow, the remake. He's a twitcher. Oh, okay, I haven't seen. He's a twitcher. <laughs> Greg, you know how you had a bad experience watching Night of the Living Dead in theater because of a crowd that's too into oh, it. Uh, Return of the Living Dead. S- yeah, excuse me. Yeah, but yes, I had that experience seeing Evil Dead the musical. Oh man! So oh. the most annoying fucking crowd of people that just like shouldn't be in public they <laughs> that's even worse for a live event or... <laughs> yeah <laughs> as shooter mcgavin once said go back to your shanties <laughs> no it's just oh it's terrible because like there's performers performing live yeah, and people on stage. are like shouting shit out i'm just like oh man oh, nobody was near me but <laughs> that that whole show was just a test of my patience and so my blood was like boiling as i was also trying to like not let it ruin my time and have a good night this is why part of why i'm in therapy now because i gotta (laughs) be able to let shit like this go when i'm in this situation because the only person that i'm affecting by getting super fucking angry is myself so i gotta just not do that when this happens Uh, that's tough though I mean, like you said, there's performers on stage trying to like do a show and to have them be like that. That makes sense to get mad. Yeah, it's not like it's Rocky Horror Picture Show, you know, at the, right, at the yeah. corner, you know, like on Saturday night at midnight. Different situation. Were you, were you sitting in a, in a splash zone? <laughs> no, and the splash zone was pretty fucking lame, to be honest oh. with you. There like, wasn't like chunks of gore from the chainsaw effect. They had, like, a sprinkler set up, just, like, misters that would, like, turn on at random times. And then at some points, the cast just had, like, super soakers of blood that they were spraying <laughs> on people. It's like, wow. It was... Like it's the Waterworld stunt show or something. It was not... It was not a big production. I'll put it that way. <laughs> but I had a lovely date with my married friend who's uh, a very tall man. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so when I saw the bear this viewing, I was like, oh, why do they have a bear? I don't remember a bear in this. Oh, oh, oh <laughs> no, the bear. Of course, they have to get the bear costume from somewhere. And that thing yeah. did look awfully fresh. How do you think they caught the bear? And you lured it in with some some sort of, you know, some uh, sort of food. Some venison. 
<laughs> a literal yeah. honeypot. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. I do remember the first time I watched it, I was really nervous because uh, I see the bear and I'm like, oh no, are they going to, they're going to, you know, it's going to be part of some ritual killing, you know, like I didn't want anything to happen to the bear. And it's like, oh no, <laughs> we've got something much worse planned. <laughs> yeah, at least it's off screen for the bear. You yeah, know? yeah, I didn't want to see it or even hear that it was happening. <laughs> Um, and that's another moment of like the, you know, kind of really indoctrinating them young is showing the kids like this is how you prepared the bear suit for the person we're going to burn. Yeah. Um, it's not like fun. giving them a lesson on, on like cutting, you know, and how to gut it and stuff. It's like Harga crafts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Wicker Man, is this an homage to the Nicolas Cage Wicker Man when he dresses in a bear suit and punches a woman hey. in the face? <laughs> you know, it very well could be. Oh, wow. I never <laughs> More- saw that version. <laughs> oh, there's there's great like eight or nine minute recaps of it on YouTube. Yeah, that's I all I highly of recommend. It. You just watch those, mm-hmm. and you'll get everything you need from those. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I have a feeling the whole movie is not going to add up to a satisfying experience, but those moments are definitely worth looking up on YouTube. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, can we talk about the super heavy, like the heaviest scene in this movie, which is the suicide scene? the music this movie's not really as far as i can recall not that heavy on score but the score as they are approaching this stone is like beautiful heavy strings and it's gorgeous and then woman smart woman makes a good decision jumps parallel with the ground (laughs) hits the rock dead on perfect shot gnarly watermelon face effect where like her face was just nothing dude jumps leg first like he's trying to make the smallest splash in the pool possible (laughs) (laughs) it does not work and I don't know what he's doing yeah she clearly thought it out a little bit better than he did (laughs) yeah and then we get the silent hill villain of the man with the ludicrously large mallet coming over to smash him and then this is like that quote oh fuck i don't even remember where it's from the the picture of the human race in the future is just like a boot stomping on a face over and over for eternity and we don't get this mallet (laughs) stomping on a face once we get it like four different hits yeah you see it you see it quite a bit and then you see it in reverse later on when danny is like tripping like you see, you see the face. That like was reform. even more yeah. effective, and I, yeah. I think impressive was the reverse mm-hmm. effect. Yeah, um, it's very cool. I felt like uh, that those mallet swingers were direct family. I don't know what oh, yeah, that, that, that idea, but I think it I was like because that. of the eye contact they were making over the meal beforehand. Oh, like, interesting. Uh, and, and I never picked up on that at all. Yeah, oh, I don't know what I, I could be totally wrong, but that in my head was kind of the explanation was, oh, they're the family. So they they're seeing their their father. It, off. It makes to... sense. And it further solidifies the indoctrination of maintaining this ritual as a family cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I really uh, I was thinking this too this time the choice to not translate what they say at that meal when so many of the other rituals and parts of this movie are translated, but that one, they don't they keep you in a dark 
And it really makes me wonder, I, I'm sure someone's compiled like a list online of here's what all the untranslated, you know, Swedish words mean in Midsommar. So I need to look it up and, and actually Ooh, that's get a good what they're idea. Because I think it's, a, it's important that they don't translate it. You know, it's definitely a, like a conscious decision. Yeah, I think they said it was just they wanted the American audiences to feel as confused and out of it yeah. as as Danny. Well, oh, what do you think it. in this in the Mayfair or the Maypole dancing scene where she has that moment of euphoria towards the end where she and the Swedish girl are like, we can understand each other. Yeah. <laughs> I can speak Swedish or, you know, however, I don't even know if they were speaking Swedish, but they were. They were communicating maybe through yes. dance alone. Yeah, she even says that, that was a cool the magic scene. of dance. <laughs> yeah. I really like that because then that leads into like when she is crime queen and she's at the head of the table and everyone is following her direction. It's like, hey, you actually have control over like over pe other people here. You know what I mean? Like you're setting the pace for what's going on now. And like, you know, you're kind of you now you're in this position of power almost. Mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> just, just the fact that she has been out of the cycle for so much of it like she didn't choose to go there she didn't choose anything about the journey she hasn't chosen anything the entire time every time she does yeah. try like she's thwarted Christian stops her every time uh, and then there's the whole community follows her lead. Like that's such an empowering feeling moment uh, for her. And I, I would be tempted to fuck around with everybody. Like, like start to sit down and stand <laughs> back up. And like, ah, yeah. ah, ah, I you got bring you. it to your mouth, but then you don't quite take it. But yeah, you <laughs> immediately turn it into a Benny Hill skit. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's gotta be, a, it's gotta be a bit. With old-timey yakety sax playing on <laughs> Swedish string instruments. Yeah. Oh, that's not yakety sax. That was circus um, music. <laughs> Damn it, you, you, you infected my brain with the wrong song, and now I can't think of yakety sax. Thank you. Thank you, Diane. This is why I want to replace Josh on the show with you, because you can put me in with these songs. Uh, oh no. <laughs> so, what do we think about the the love potion number nine that Christian's put under with the girl's pubes and drops of her period blood? And, I mean, he's clearly shown to be disoriented. One thing that tripped me out just based on the set was they walk him into a little waiting room with a yeah. chair there, and then they walk him through to another room and it looks nearly identical to the room that he was just in, like he's tripping and repeating that that room. How fucked up do you think Christian is during this? His pupils are like, are, they're not super dilated. But as he's approaching this girl with these naked women all dancing around her, what state of mind do you think he's in? What, what do you think about this magic potion? that he's supposedly been put under. Um, this was one of my big questions because I didn't entirely like their treatment of him during this part. Like I yeah, want him to make that. Yeah. I want him to make this transgression totally on his own. Uh, and 
it doesn't seem like he's you know acting to entirely under his own volition at this point, and uh, it's just a little uncomfortable. Like the fact that they drug him, coerce him into sleeping with this, having procreating specifically procreating with this woman. Um, and then when Danny sees the community also rallies around her, like it's weird. It's like they're trying to have it both ways. And it's one of the things that make me, makes me stem them from being a culture into being a cult. Like they, they are every bit as manipulative as Christian is. Mm -hmm. So Danny is really just trading in one manipulative uh, entity in Christian for the Harga, you know, just like, uh, you know, it's, it's less of a happy ending if you think of it that way. I I still think he absolutely is, you know, coerced by them. But there's still an element of of he he def, he was going to Sweden for the, basically this exact purpose, you know. It's kind of that thing of like a monkey's paw situation for him, where the joke is like, "Hey, don't forget about the women you're going to impregnate in Sweden when oh. we go." You know, that's like they're selling him on when they take him there. Yeah, and did you uh, catch too that they drop that whole thing about oh, one of our books is missing, and it mm-hmm. yeah, and they make it make it look like they suspect him. You know, they've set that whole thing up just to make him more likely to go along with whatever it is they want because it, they it know is, he wants it, to do his project, right? It is very funny. He immediately is like, we are not friends with Josh. We're not associated with him. We're so... <laughs> it just, it just it does not hesitate at all to sell him out. Yeah, I'm totally throwing him under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I kind of felt like, yeah, they were basically doing to Christian what he's been doing to, to everybody, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did consent in advance with Steve, um, uh, the yeah. woman in her office. And, and that's one other thing I really appreciated about the director's cut is that extended conversation um, that they have with the theatrical release, because I've seen it pretty recently, is very short, um, where she just says, what do you think of Maya? And he's like, oh, uh, I think I ate her pube. <laughs> and and she says yeah that sounds right and um and that's it but in the extended the director's cut you get a lot more of her saying exactly what they want from him and getting the idea the implication that this will make up for the book disappearing you know which well (laughs) is he the guy that gets blood eagled i don't know if anyone watched the show vikings yeah. Did anyone watch Vikings, the TV show? Uh, no, I haven't no. seen any of that. No, well, he, there's. But I, I do know this is a real practice. I think. So yeah, and so there's this. a scene. It's a gnarly fucking scene they set up where there's a a jarl of a clan who's been taken over, and basically they say, "We're going to blood eagle you, and if you don't scream or make a sound, you'll go into Valhalla. But if you scream." then you won't. And then they, like, fillet his back and chop his ribs off and then lift the lungs back through the outside of the back and flay them up like wings. It's, like, insanely gnarly. 
This, fa- this happens to somebody in, in the show Hannibal, too. <laughs> like oh, in the first yeah, season. that's yeah. a season one. Within yeah, the- that was one of the yeah. first episodes. Yeah. Ooh, I don't Which, remember that. Period that. Of the sh- that period of the show where they expect you to believe Baltimore had a different serial killer every single week, <laughs> like doing these super elaborate murders like that. There's you know? a serial killer on that show that created a saber-toothed a tiger. <laughs> Yeah, oh, like a, yeah. Like a you mechanical... were at the exact same place as me. The saber people... tiger episode, yes. or whatever that whatever that suit was. It's it's made out of out of an actual saber tooth tiger skull. <laughs> it is. I I loved that show. I thought the show was great, but that oh, so, was a moment I could not get past. So I was like, pretentious. What is I loved this? it. So yeah. pretentious. I love that. So good. I, I had to so stop. over the top. I, I had to stop. So self indulgent too. <laughs> exactly. I had to stop watching it when we when they got to the episode in season one of uh, the two doctors. Like Hannibal convinces his do- doctor friend to mm. uh, lie to Will, and right. I was so morally outraged by that as somebody who's <laughs> dealt with neurologists her entire life. Um, I was like. Oh, that was way easy. <laughs> you know? It's so unprofessional. I'm yeah. out. I'm out. You can kill all the people you want, but don't lie to them. <laughs> so what was everybody's, um, if they, if there was a hook to get you into the clan, what would it be for you? What would be your weakness that would, Ooh. they would prey upon? Do you think? Oh man. Uh I I feel like this lonely guy over here companionship <laughs> like just just set me up with like a picnic with a a cool down-to-earth Swedish woman who wants to just lie down under some trees and then maybe <laughs> a few days in after I'm comfortable with where I am doing some shrooms <laughs> I I feel like I could just make you know I could bake for the community. I have like gardening skills. I have moderate DIY. I'm a musician. Like I I I have a fair amount to offer to a, a cult. Oh, excuse me, a commune here. <laughs> wow. Oh man. Yeah. I feel like it's their view on like death. That mm-hmm. would entice me because when when Pele is telling the story of how his he has lost his parents too, but he has never once felt the grief of it. I'm like, oh, well, that sounds lovely <laughs> to experience such a great tragic loss, and you don't have this like crushing weight on your soul the rest of your life. Like, wow, that's it is pretty enticing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh, I I don't know what my I I mean maybe uh, the cry circle could can I do that once a week? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think I liked the the close female relationships without any of the um external stuff that society yeah. puts on groups of women when they get, you know or expects of people when they get together. You know, like, oh, here's the bitchy friend, and here's the one that drinks all the wine. And, you know, it's like, no, you're just who you are, and they're going to hug you. <laughs> and that's going to be it. Yeah. But, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I hadn't even thought about that. That's, I think for me, as soon as they get back and Pele sees his friend that he calls his brother, and they hug, that that masculine 
affection and the ability like that wall isn't there. Um, oh yeah. When, when Sean left Nashville, Oh no. I, oh no. I got a hug that has stayed with me before oh, he man. got on the plane and it is still it is Aww. still keeping me warm to a certain degree. I might have said I love you. Yes, he might have. I say it much more <laughs> easily and to I anybody did. who no, listens. I, I, I listen. I say I love you easily to my friends. I said it tonight to two people and hugged them both at the same time. Aww. I kissed Two men who are 60 years or older on the cheek on Veterans Day. Okay? I, it's very easy for me to express love with my friends. Thank you to for your service. Love wow. with, <laughs> to express love with my family, though, it's tougher. Forget about There's it. baggage there. Yeah. That's so you would good. fit right in here because your family gets killed off when they get to a certain age. And there's just you and your buds and the, and the cult. Right? <laughs> It's perfect. I just got to plan my escape when I'm like 69 years old. Yep. Because listen, I, I've been hanging out with my friend who's in his, he's 78. He just had dual cataract operations, got both lenses in his eyes replaced yesterday. Oh, Today, he, he, I'm driving around, he's like, I can see forever. And he's like got a new lease on life. And he's out and fucking living it up. So the fact that these people think 72... <laughs> is the, 72 is young, man. 72 yeah. is the new 46. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As one who just hit 54, I'm like, 54 is the new 40, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying that. <laughs> <laughs> See, I've lost my hearing already. <laughs> um, so... At the, I mean, I guess we're at the very end here as we have our sacrifices. And what's more telling of a cult being full of shit than them giving their two willing sacrifices a liquid that will free them from pain, and then they scream as they burn alive? <laughs> yeah, that you <laughs> was hell, faulty, man. man. They they didn't really yeah. test that stuff. Well, did they? <laughs> well, I, I think it's all, I, I don't think they tested it at all. I think it's just a, it's just a placebo. Placebo, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the weird. That's added to the weird comedy of that scene to me. When, <laughs> like I mentioned, they start screaming in terror and pain because they're burning alive, and the rest of the crowd's like, "Well, no, we all gonna scream too, and that'll make things okay." We're feeling their pain, even though we can't imagine what they're going through right now. That's a, um, a good point, though, that I hadn't really thought about that, is they really don't give a shit, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, like, you know, oh, well, you know. So, Greg, after watching this recent, I, I feel like I did think those gestures of empathy were more genuine. But now, after having this discussion, I'm starting... It's a thing where, like, culturally, I think it is kind of a mockery, but the people genuinely believe it, you know? So there is sincerity behind it, but when you really kind of break it down, like, and view it from a different angle, they are mocking, you know? Like, on a personal um, level, it's real, but when you yeah. look at it as, like, a systematic practice... I mean, it, it is like the thought... It's, it's like the... I mean, it's like the Twitter thoughts and prayers, right? It's like, well, okay, yes, yes. yeah, I'm sure you're saying this with some sincerity, but it is so detached, you know, and like does not address what is actually happening, you know, or oh, move towards any sort of like helping or stopping it. Like, yeah, they they are there for Danny and they are trying to get a kind of sense of what she is going through to support her. 
but nobody's sitting down and talking to her and being like, hey, do you know? What, what are you feeling? That's such a good point. I was just going <laughs> to yes, bring up exactly. that everyone shares in her grief, but nobody tries to help her yeah. find a way to not have it or to avoid it or to help her through this relationship. It They're is only kind of there to share in the highest too. highs and the lowest lows. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's I'm like, going <laughs> to reflect your pain. Um, mm -hmm. And now we can move past it, which is like a total stoic no Nordic kind of thing. Yeah, of absolutely. Like, I accept your pain. Um, and um, now we, we're done with it. <laughs> so that's it. Yeah. And then the, the burning them alive and then screaming like that to, you know, to share their pain. It's like you, <laughs> you take a gun and you shoot somebody and go, I know how you feel. You know, it's like, no, you, you put me in this place <laughs> and you're going to tell me, like, I feel you that, you know, I feel your pain. I share it. Um, that is it. There is a, somehow this this viewing. It just came up to me as very, very funny when they all started screaming. So yeah, how do we read like the very end of this here as Christian burns alive and Danny. For one of the very first times, if not the first time in the movie, smiles mm -hmm. and. I, uh, it 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 feels like a broken moment to me. This is no, there's no way this is a happy ending. And I know this guy <laughs> fucking sucked, but to burn alive, yeah. dressed as a bear and like a mockery, like it, uh, Jesus Christ, like how could the fact that she's able to, and it's not her. It's like she, her mind is warped by this cult. To look at this as not only deserved but a good thing and a liberating thing for her, yeah. it's a, it's it's a hard ending for me to wrap my mind around as somebody who's really like cheering for Danny. Yeah, um, I think that's why I was so obsessed with this movie for a few days after I saw it because I was like, I feel really bad about my reaction to this ending, <laughs> which was. He found her family. <laughs> oh, sure, she's insane now. But because I, that was the smile of the insane, you know? I saw a lot of criticisms of the movie and it came out being like, they make the cult, the, you know, the, this like semi-fascist cult, the good guys, because she smiles at the end and it's a happy ending. But I, when yeah. it's like, if you saw it as happy, then yeah, that, that that's kind of says something. But I also saw it that way when I first watched it. I think what you know? it is And it is, came away... Yeah, I, 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 not to say like I was like, yay, Danny, but it was right. more like I had to sort through all these conflicting thoughts and feelings. Because, because you do feel some catharsis for you do. Christian like, dying the way he does. Yeah, I know. don't want to, but I do. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I do. I do. Yeah, um, that's a perfect way of putting it. I was like, I don't want to be the person who is like, you know, not I wasn't it's not even that you're happy for Danny. It's more that you're like uh that chapter that was so painful is now closed, is done. As it mm -hmm. can never be for any normal person. But because she's in this cult, she's utterly replaced him. Yeah. If if um, it doesn't work on a practical level, it works on a metaphorical level. It, as far as like, wouldn't it be nice? if you could make that clean of a break with your exes 
and then you'd have a community that supported you going forward. And uh, if Pele is right and you don't spend that time in grief alone, I mean, it's it would be... Um, I don't know. Once in a while, there's these bittersweet thoughts about, like, you go back and you look over your life. And it's I've been thinking about the, the Beatles song in my life uh, a lot lately, you know, getting older and friends getting older and um, losing some people. And you start to think about that idea of, like, I've loved these people and I still love them all. And but it kind of hurts. It's a little painful. <laughs> To have that yeah. and still have those threads of connection. Wouldn't it be easier if they just all kind of burned away? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. That's a that's a great way to summarize that. A uh, couple of things. First, have you heard the Sean Connery cover of that song? Yes. It's, it's great. <laughs> he basically does a William Shatner uh, and just talks the lyrics out. Like, does not singing. Just, it's great. It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and two, I think Ari Aster, I could be misremembering, but I believe Ari Aster said that like, he kind of got like one of the one of the things that sort of gave him the idea for this movie was he went through a breakup and he like burned a box of his ex's stuff. Oh, um, and I don't know if it was like stuff that he was supposed to give back or just things he had around mm. from their time and was just like, oh, well, I have to get rid of it some way. But I completely understood when he mentioned that of that feeling of like, you go through this period in your life that, you know, with somebody that means a lot to you. And now you just want to, like you said, Josh, burn it all away and get rid of it and never think of it again, forgetting. Yeah. That there's like some positive stuff in there too. And to just destroy it all. And lots um, of people do do that be, after painful yeah. breakups. They, they, all Oh yeah, have absolutely. Like friends over and they'll like, you know, burn whatever letters or you know it's not usually their stuff yeah but <laughs> there's something about like our human psychology that finds fire like spiritually cleansing that way mm. yeah there's two points to that that signify that this might be a me problem one of them is this thing that i've been playing with all through our recording is from one of my exes <laughs> <laughs> and I keep it on my desk here and where I see it all the time. Josh just held up an obsidian arrowhead to the camera. It's oh. a bronze oh, wow. arrowhead. It, it was crafted by her, her oh, father. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's great. And it had a story that went along with it when she gave it to me. Um, I've been playing with a wooden whale in my hands as oh. we've been talking. Wait, carved by me. Sean, how's your... I was going to say, you carved that, right? Yeah. Uh, how's How is your um, book holder holding up? It's great, except yesterday I was fucking around with it because I didn't have anything else to fuck around with. So it's essentially two points with a thumb hole in the middle, and then you put your thumb down and it holds the page. <laughs> except yesterday, during my therapy session, I was messing around with it, and I stuck my middle finger in, and it went all the way down over my knuckle. And then uh -oh. during my therapy <laughs> session, it got stuck, and so <laughs> my therapist was looking at me through my webcam. <laughs> And then trying to like subtly not panic, yanking my hand out of frame of the camera as I'm responding to all the ways that my thought processes oh my are flawed. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. Therapy. <laughs> That's good for you. Uh, so let's wrap this one up. What do we say? Ratings. I am going to give this one a four and a half out of five. I think it's a fucking excellent movie. Um, 
there's just a couple of things that don't quite like line up for me specifically. This um it's like the Leatherface kill. There, there's just some other things that I just kind of strike me a little bit odd. But overall, I love this movie and its portrayal of psychedelics and cult. And I love a daytime horror movie. Any like just <laughs> daytime horror. Because when I was a kid, daytime horror was some of the only stuff I could watch because I was afraid of the night stuff. So I've always had an affinity for it. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think this one quite hits the heredi- hereditary levels, but this one kicks ass. Diane, what did you think? Honestly, I loved it so much because it made me really think, you know, um, and, and I feel like movies that make me uncomfortable and question my thought processes and everything and make me feel conflicted. Those are the ones that that I love is just because it's making you think it's sticking with you. It's sticking with you. So I would give it a five. Yeah, a five. <laughs> five out of five. I'm going to change my answer to a five just because now that you say it, the fact that I don't know how I really feel about this and the fact that I'm both elated and feel sad for Christian at the end of this. And Florence Pugh, just as a whole, is incredible in this movie. And it, 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 it's, it's worth it. It's a five. Fine. Josh. Uh, um... Sean, what is what is my criteria for that last half star? I cr- I cried. I Did teared you? up in this movie. I teared up when she is breaking down on the couch as mm-hmm. he's holding her. I teared up, and I think I might have also because the music as Christian Burns is gorgeous, mm-hmm. and so I I think I think I teared up twice. Definitely when she gets the call in the winter about her family it, that it, it it's Ari Aster captures horrible tragic moments of grief from his lead actresses very well yeah based on this in hereditary I was um, blown away by her so the it gets four and a half for me it doesn't get that last half star because it didn't hit me in the emotions uh but I do have to say, what a way to tee this movie up. Like, his entire last movie, his feature film debut, was a meditation on grief. And he introduces that much heavy grief into the first, like, seven minutes <laughs> of this movie. And then moves on from it. And is like, where are we going to go from here? Um, the one thing I did forget to mention... Has anybody seen his short film? His, I believe it was his thesis film uh, from film school. It's something about the Jacksons, right? I haven't seen it. Okay, uh, I've yeah, heard the, it's gnarly. <laughs> yeah, the, the strange thing about the Jacksons. Uh, there, yes, and yeah, it's. I don't remember. Oh, I think I watched a YouTube recap on it on one of those like yes most fucked up movie recap channels or whatever yes it is Um, on one of those definitely yeah uh i would recommend watching it 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 is it is so well done for what is a glorified student film and wow i have to say i'm uh i'm entirely bought in on ari aster so um what does he have coming out next i don't know 
good question. I actually don't. Oh, you know what? Yeah, it's actually got kind of a weird title now that I think about it. Um, uh, Disappointment Disapp Boulevard. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Disappointment Boulevard. That is a weird yes. title, but you know what? He's bought enough credit with me that exactly. I'm in. I'm pretty sure that's a Leonard Cohen song. <laughs> <laughs> the cast for it I'm looking at is Nuts, Parker Posey, Joaquin Phoenix, wow. Nathan Lane, um, Patty Lapone. Like it is a weird collection of people, but that's kind of exciting too. So, Greg, what do you? Uh, how many stars and hearts do you give it? It oh it's uh, if you're talking letterboxed it's five stars one heart yeah <laughs> um, it's great I I think that uh, it was a four and a half when I first watched it and then just the more I see it the more I become impressed by different aspects of it even mm -hmm. if I do agree with Sean that there are some things that slip like I do think the Leatherface kill isn't totally perfect and there are sometimes we talked about how in your face it can be um, like it feels the need to kind of first spell out that the, the pube drink with the pictograph with the pictures with the murals. And then it feels the need to have also Mark yell out when he pulls a pube out of his mouth. That's a pube where it's like, <laughs> well, the audience is fully aware of what is going on here. We've been made more than it's, it's more than clear. And uh, there are just time. There's a few writing elements like that. I think that kind of bumped me. Um, but for the most part, in terms of like, just you're able to deconstruct so many moments here and uh there's so many themes to dig into it's a very nuanced portrayal of these characters and people the fact that we can talk so much about how conflicted we are about the ending speaks to a lot and also all of us coming up with ways to admit of how the cult would grab us like i think says a lot that it's believable that the change that cha that danny goes through and um the scene that did because uh, i really love your your metric josh of does it make me cry for a five star mm -hmm. movie. I don't cry during this, but I do get very emotional during Pele's speech about asking Danny, have you ever felt held by a real oh. family? That mm. line. Like, yeah. That, that line. really lands. Uh. Yeah. Imagine um, how many people he's gotten into the cult with that line. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, it really, really hits hard. And I think that is the, the part where it just, just shows to me that it gets me emotionally. Um, to kind of cross that five-star threshold for me, uh, in spite of some grievances here and there with it. And the director's cut is just more... It just shows you how much more work went into fleshing out these characters and the and the community. Um, we talked briefly about that scene where he he's talking about... Um, Christian is interviewing somebody and about the work they do in the village and his line about, like, oh, it's a big week for him about the guy being mad. He's like, why is he so mad? He's like, well, he's a bit sensitive. It's a big week for him. And just that weird perspective from one of the random villagers, like that line brought a lot of character to this village, you know, where they're also maybe nervous about this whole ceremony. It is a big week for everybody. They prepare for this every, you know, it's it's a big deal to accept these outsiders and, you know, um, like go through these these ritualistic motions. Uh, yeah, I love this movie. I, I, I didn't talk much too about like I grew up Catholic and we talked about just like the, the pagan elements in rooted in judeo-christian culture and stuff and when they are in that temple kind of preparing christian and the other sacrifices to be burned alive they're wearing those like red robes and face masks and like it made me think of so many ceremonies i witnessed as a, i took part of as a child were you an altar boy i was catholic i was i was not an altar boy but i was a um 
I was forced by my my parents to be an usher. Uh. So I sat people, passed around the collection baskets, make tried to s- sort of maintain order amongst the people yeah. <laughs> during mass. I had eight years in Catholic school, so yeah, I I got confirmed as a as a Catholic. My my patron saint is is a uh, Francis de Sales. So you know, <laughs> I went through all of that, and this really put into perspective something I didn't think about much when I was fifteen being confirmed. You know, just like what is so different from like the the bishop confirming me in this ceremony to those guys like preparing that temple for human sacrifice. You know, it looks so similar and has carries the same sort of vibe. Um, so I, I really connect to a lot of things in this movie. Mm. That's a good point. Craig, I, I feel like we got to get you on to have a, uh, like a Catholic exorcist episode oh, sometimes. Would, Cause uh, we'll love it. I've, that would be fun. Josh is probably annoyed by now with me <laughs> railing against like the Catholic church as a whole. Love my Catholics, but as like a systematic whole, mm-hmm. I just like rally against yeah. it on this show repeatedly. <laughs> For a brief detour into another movie about Catholicism, that's something that I absolutely adore about uh, Lady Bird. What you just said, where you're like, love my Catholics, but that institution that sucks. I, growing up, I knew so many wonderful, wonderful people that I saw at church every Sunday. Just the, the most genuinely good human beings all coming to pay service to the world, one of the world's most like evil organizations throughout history. <laughs> like yeah. it is such, Actual... and Lady Bird captures that feeling of like, she's growing up in this Catholic school with these Catholic people. And the system that she is in is so oppressive. But when you have like, there's a scene where the nun, you know, forgives her for like graffitiing the car, you know, whatever. And it's like, yeah, there are genuinely very, very good people in that horrible, horrible, horrible organization. Um, it, it's very fascinating. <laughs> well, I think we're actually going to be talking more about Catholicism as we venture into our next movie. After the break, we will be talking about Antonia Bird's Ravenous. Up next, we are going to be talking about Antonia Bird's Ravenous from 1999. This is a Western cannibal horror movie, satirical, black comedy, homoerotic, romantic (laughs) film starring Guy Pearce and Robert Carlyle. And it just happens to be one of my favorite movies of all time, and I cannot wait to talk about it. Josh, when did you first see Ravenous? Oh my gosh. Um, It was years ago, and I did not get it at all. The first, no, the, the I did not either the I first time. It. The first time, especially, I remember the moment this movie lost me is when that song Run comes on. When Carlisle <laughs> starts ter- 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 chasing Jeffrey Davies. And it's, <laughs> yeah, it's and like, run oh, and, brother, we're out, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the first time I watched this movie, I don't know, 10 years ago, what the fuck is this this uh, i couldn't compute it sorry to interrupt you josh um but i did have a a friend at the time who there was a few movies that i was down on that he was like you need to reconsider uh there was this um there was uh, easy rider oh which i still maintain uh, um it it did a lot for cinema, independent cinema especially, 
but I don't like it as much as a lot of what followed. It's, it's like Nirvana for me, like, especially that album, right? Like, um, Nevermind is my least favorite Nirvana album. Mm -hmm. It's, it's too slick. It's like, I don't know. That's beside the point. (laughs) Ravenous. He had me come over, um, and we sat down and we ate Malamars. So it was probably in the winter. (laughs) Uh, and we watched Ravenous again. And he was like, just trust, just go with it. And he was correct. So Ryan, uh, you know, you were right on this one. (laughs) Greg, when did you first see this? You're kind of newer to this one, right? Yes. Uh, the first time I saw this was after, uh, I do hosts, um, co-host my own podcast, the weekly podcast massacre. And every month we select a new theme to the cover for that (laughs) month. And we pick horror movies that, address that theme in some way or are related to it or just we think are good uh you know thematic parallels or whatever and uh for december we had the genius idea of let's do cold movies just movies that are associated I just, with the cold. i just had that move that idea for january <laughs> and josh was like what's a cold movie i'm like there's a lot of movies that are cold <laughs> so um for that month uh i don't remember, i think i had because I had uh, two co-hosts, and so one person every month, it kind of rotate, rotated who got to pick two movies for every month. And so for that month, I picked Misery, and I picked Ravenous. And Misery was one I had I had always wanted to see but hadn't. And Ravenous was just, well, I need a second pick. Let me Google snowy movies, snowy horror movies, cold horror movies, whatever. And this was just on the list. And I saw 1999, I saw Cannibals, I saw Guy Pierce. And I was like, okay, let's, that sounds great. Sounds interesting. Um, and when I first started watching it, I was immediately very worried that similar thing of not getting it because that first like joke of the quote pops up <laughs> and with a sound effect. And I was like, oh no, what did I do? What am I about to see? Yeah. That but arrow was, is sound. This, is yes. this in the vein of like not another teen movie? <laughs> exactly. What, what, what is this? Because it's, What's the Nietzsche quote? It's about something about you stare into the yeah, void, right? Or um, those who hunt monsters. Yes, you become a monster. Need to be yourself. sure you don't turn into one yourself, and and then eat me anonymous with yes. the like you said, Greg, the big slamming sound effect, which is funny. But then the sound effect gave me pause for the whole movie. I was like, oh boy, we are we might be in for something painful here. Um, well, but I, I I just I found that first watch though I. Not that I like, because I think the second watch revealed a lot more for me, too, but I, I think I vibed with it a lot on that first watch, ultimately, um, and was a fan of it right away, and had a lot of fun doing our episode about it. The, there's also the title card puking, which, if that doesn't also set a tone, I don't know what will. <laughs> Diane, when did you first see this? Oh, um, <clears throat> I had to think about that. 2002 um back then i worked nights at a law firm and my only other nighttime friend was my buddy steve and he was a night owl so i'd go over to his house and we'd watch movies on his wall and he had one of those projector things and he'd hang a sheet on his wall and it would be like being in a little movie theater and it was super cool very cozy and he'd always come up with these movies that I'd never heard of before, you know. So, so one time he was like, I've got one and it was ravenous. 
And I was like, well, what is it? What is it about? And he was like, just watch it. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm really glad he didn't try to describe it because, you know, like if you've seen the trailers, it does not like you can't describe it really. No. Uh, um, So I remember watching it and just being like, what is happening? You know, like the, the shift in tone it's like am i i'm i'm a little scared but now i'm laughing and now i'm scared again. <laughs> you know? it was i i just could not stop watching it for most of a year <laughs> uh, like a little production note this movie started kind of broken it it filmed in like the slovakian mountains and the first director got noted to death by a producer or something and eventually they bailed and they tried to bring someone else in and the crew just like casting crew revolted against that person and yeah. that's when carlisle said i know this lady antonia bird and she's a stage director and she's also like a partner with him and so robert carlisle brought her in yeah and i think i i think this movie has the weirdness of a stage director doing their one-off only feature film i she might have done one other one but um she unfortunately died like a few years after this but this has the weird just the weirdest fucking vibe and everyone's going for it and i think what i think one thing i really see is the actors have joy in their performances because they're all going for it yeah, I kind of, I really got the feeling of, you can, you can tell sort of like, this is a stressed production in that they're making stuff up. A lot of that stuff at the end is improvised by Robert Carlyle, you know, like, and they were like, oh, it works, <laughs> you know, and um, they're like rewriting on, you know, that day, you know, there were day of rewrites and uh, just kind of like flying oh and all the snow that didn't happen when it was supposed to so you everybody is in it you know for the for the win you know (laughs) and and they're they're all uh you can tell (laughs) the seasons change seemingly shot to shot scene to scene (laughs) and basically i i chalk that up to um well you know the the weather in the sierra nevada sure is unpredictable and um Sometimes it's a snowy mountain pass, and sometimes it kind of looks like April and spring. Um, well, that's kind of accurate for mountain weather. I, I, I cut, but it kind of is, sort of, with a with a wink and a nod and a, a little <laughs> pinch of salt added to it, you know. But whatever, they're having fun. <laughs> they're they're that shot when they have the whole crew in that like highest high peak, and it's the snowy peak as they're all hiking around with their goggles. I was just marveling of how the hell do you get a crew up there? That looks like, um, Josh, we covered the Iger sanction. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you get a film crew that high up? It, um, what, what was the, the bear movie from like five years ago? The Revenant. Revenant? I was yeah, thinking re- about the movie a lot this time. Yeah. Yes. Uh, there's a couple shots, especially where they're like on the edge of the cliff and stuff like that, that I was like, Oh, it's just, and then he jumps off the cliff, which <laughs> yeah. I was like, that's, it's the same movie. They're this, essentially this should be an Oscar winning movie is what I'm saying. 
for the score, I agree. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I think, like, to really talk about this movie, I, I I have to talk about the score because it's it's the brain worm that has infected my brain and has stuck with me and just won't let go no matter how many times I watch this. And so to go hiking out in the woods now, sometimes it's nice to just throw on the ravenous soundtrack. <laughs> and so I think like, I'll just go through like uh, uh, every once in a while, I'll just throw in a highlight song. But like to start with, we have like Boyd's journey. So this, the count of this is broken this song because the way this song breaks down is the first note is one two three four five six one two three four five six seven one two three four it adds up to 13 Whoa. but the rest of the instruments that come in come in at a four four pattern so the music never adds up there's this dissonance that happens again and again in the soundtrack where it's either it's the dissonance of the timing of the two different music things that are going on, or it's the dissonance of modern instruments and modern loops and tape loops, and then combining those with old classic instruments that add their own, like, mythical feel of, like, these ancient forest spirits that exist in these strings, and... And then it's like this this soundtrack often conflicts where it's the two of those things clashing and then some of these songs they like soar and they're just like extremely beautiful. And I, I just think it's like a daring soundtrack. Some of these songs are preposterous. So um, <laughs> it's just like my favorite soundtrack ever. <laughs> it's definitely good mountain driving music. I, I, we have a, a vacation place that we like to go to in the Sierra Nevadas. And for a while there, it was like, I'd listen to uh, Trek to the Cave <laughs> on the Trek drive to the up cave. there. Uh, <laughs> Trek to the Cave. Uh, I'm going to skip to that one really fast because that one, this is a song that Josh and I talk a lot about our emotions and feelings and it's embarrassing, but it's not embarrassing. And Trek to the Cave is, we start with these strings, and it's just like the serenity of the forest and of nature. And then it comes in with this bumbling stupidity of with the banjo on my knee. But then that like introduction of this like stupidity and these humans then starts like soaring and escalating and it's just I, I recently rented a viola and I think my love of this score has a lot to do with it and also this score captures this song especially like right here this captures like my first time backpacking where I was 25 and had been like super depressed for five years and going out like being in the woods and being in the forest and having an adventure it, it, like opened my brain to a possibility that maybe I couldn't be depressed and maybe there was like another side to this through this adventure and through nature and so like this like big swelling here of this like this achieving string it just really like fills me with a lot of like the Jack London spirit. I live in a town that Jack London lived in. 
Wow. And so I think that's this song right here, like just embodies like Jack London's like pursuit of adventure in the nature and in in the woods and stuff. I've had I've had a lot to say about this soundtrack for a long time. And so, <laughs> I love you know. it. I want every I want every thought you got because this is great. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I will say well, that's another connection. Just from you're talking about it right there, another connection I just made between this and Midsommar. You're you're talking you're talking about because I have I've had a extremely similar experience, and it lines up with my most memorable psychedelic experience too. I was with some friends, and we were walking around in um the uh in the rainforest in Washington in the uh, I believe it's just called the Ho Rainforest, and we were on acid. And walking through that, and uh, I had recently experienced some pretty intense, like, personal tragedies. And walking through the woods on psychedelics, opening my mind to nature and the beauty of it and things like that really did feel like a renewal. And I had this sort of epiphany out there in the woods. They have what are called, you know, we were in kind of a national park and there's plaques set up explaining plants and things like that. And next to this log with all sorts of moss and other things growing out of it, it talked about the concept of a nurse log, right? Which is a fallen tree that is dead, but things, plants, spores, things other attach themselves into it and draw nutrients from it as it is decaying and eventually becomes soil on the forest floor. And so just this idea of life coming from death was extremely comforting for me. But that is also a theme in both Midsommar and Ravenous, is life coming from death. And, mm. um, you know, uh, it's a very, both of them are a fairly sinister approach to this idea that can also be comforting. And like we talked about with Midsommar, the idea of it sort of being enticing. Obviously, cannibalism is not as enticing <laughs> in this movie, but this idea of you feel stronger and more powerful and things like that, you understand why people are kind of drawn to this. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the track, The Cave, a little bit? The crazy yeah, instruments happening on there. Yeah, let me, uh, let me pull that one up. Here we go. I love this one. The Cave, I feel like this is where... I mean, the soundtrack has its oddities, but when you hear this... And this, and then the, yeah. This is where it really and Carlisle at this point is also cranking the weirdness. <laughs> what do you think about his finger acting as he's? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. First of all, I used to listen to this in the car, and when you're driving in traffic in San Francisco, you probably should not listen to this. But um, when it gets going, you know, but yeah, I was trying to decide like what, what exactly is, is he doing? Is he psyching himself up to turn? Um, Or is he just purposefully trying to freak out Toffler so that he lets him alone? It does seem ambiguous whether is, is Calhoun and Ives are they actually two separate identities mm-hmm. where one man is possessed and taken over, or is it always Ives who's taking them out there knowing that he has a knife dug down, buried in the soil? It, it, 
it's that ambiguity that I I don't really think there's an answer to it because I've seen this movie a shitload of times and I still don't really know what's going on with some of the things that happen here. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, it'd be it'd be either answer is pretty much okay. Like he even the it, the credits give him F W Colhoun, but also Colonel Ives. So uh, yeah, we get yeah. the feeling that he just stole Ives' identity, but maybe he is Ives. But yeah, yeah, but Carlo does such a great job of playing a completely different person, you know, yeah. um, when he is called Colonel Ives versus when he is called Calhoun. And um, it also lends to um, this second watch. Uh, I, I had a, a quote from Roger Ebert's review of this that I read after I watched it the first time that really mm-hmm. stuck with me and kind of colored a lot of my feeling this time where he says... Um, he says it's clever in the way that it avoids most of the cliches of the vampire movie by using cannibalism and most of the cliches of the cannibal movie by using vampirism. And so watching <laughs> it this time with viewing Calhoun slash Ives as a vampire, we meet him and he is so emaciated and weak and, you know, out of it. And then we have this sort of breaking point where we see what the kind of mania that he is capable of. And then after he feeds again, we see him refined and, you know, like healthy enough to kind of rejoin society and kind of like de-age himself a bit, like like Dracula or something. Uh, <laughs> to mention Roger Ebert again, Josh, when you and I watched Nope, Eli mentioned um, score shouldn't be noticeable. Mm-hmm. And um, Ebert says in this, uh, and I admired the visceral music by Michael Nyman, who is a pretty prolific film composer. And Damon Albarn, who is of the Gorillas, I Blur. believe. Blur. And Blur. Um, the two of them composed this. And he said, um, <laughs> the music, which calls attention to itself, common, but deserves to, rare. Wow. And I think that's a great way to, to put this. That's an awesome quote. That's really cool. That's a great one. I will say, too, the score is something that, that I... That's the part I didn't get on my first watch. Like, I think... I, I'd have to listen back to our episode about it, but I th- I'm pretty sure I mentioned how I don't think it, the score works when I first watched it. But this time, knowing that Sean was going to talk about the score in more detail, I was like, okay, I'm really going to listen and pay attention to it this time, which is easy, because like you said, it calls attention to itself. <clears throat> but I, I really found myself to enjoy it, too. It is such an odd mix of things. Like... It does sound very 90s at a certain point, like of that time. Like the music is all sort of out of place, you know. Uh, but it really added to my my enjoyment of the movie this time around. I just love the balls of it. Yeah. The balls to submit this score. These two guys, their collaboration. And this is what they came up with, especially the parts where it's that the sound box. Oh, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> is that a melodica there you go oh, that part love it. when that note comes in over the top of those strings it's a little shocking the first time I heard this I'm just like what the fuck is this what do um what do you call it when things don't sync chronolo- chronologically asynchronous? Asynchronous, something yeah. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 
but that's what I love. It's 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 ballsy. It's this collision when, of ideas, and then that, the movie is uh, a collision of ideas and themes and performances, and like, are these guys gonna kiss at the end? Or what's <laughs> go, like what's happening here? Like, there's so much happening and so much shit going on that it's like it just. It, it, it's just magic that it works, but I totally understand why someone would think that this is a mess and doesn't work at all. When that like, kicks I, in I, at the ending, like when that when you hear that for the final time in the movie before it ends, that is the point yeah. this time where I got very emotional. Um, something about it when that when that hits at the right end, and then learning it's called Boyd's Journey is making me emotional just thinking about it. Well, <laughs> so then Boyd's Journey then. Um, finishes with like a, a rehashed journey or version of it with the end title song mm-hmm. and it, it's like a remaster version except this time Boyd's Journey gets a complete score or a complete orchestral version and it's sweeping and it's full of strings and the camera ascends as he dies because his journey's complete because he he ended his cycle yeah. And he did what needed to be done. And so it's almost like we start with this incomplete version of his journey song with these kind of broken instruments. And by the end of the movie, these songs keep building layer upon layer until it just becomes this like beautiful moment of perfection. And then towards the end, so like I would say like this part is like his death song here. And then there's a part where this is like the ascension of the soul now like this is like the soul moving into the afterlife we have that whole death part now and then as the title credits roll this is just like spirit zooming around or whatever that's i've seen this This... movie like three times within the past 18 months probably um the first time i was uh feverish and so i don't necessarily count it because i was probably in and out but i watched it like two months ago with Eli uh, at his place and then this time I watched it with headphones on and it is, if you haven't done that, if you have not watched it with headphones and you want to see it again, I would highly recommend doing that because it is like these sounds are drilled into your brain but it's in such a good enjoyable way that like takes you on the ride with it mm-hmm. and the that disconnect between the you know what you're seeing and what you're hearing it gets sanded down over time and it like it just works like this is the sound of something that looks like that movie now to me <laughs> if i see other movies set like this i'd be like what the hell <laughs> where's the damon albarn sound yes effect, exactly <laughs> <laughs> why is this movie so plain <laughs> why is it only one genre yeah what the hell <laughs> Yeah, there's something what? about the uh, the cacophony of that becomes melodic, you know? It's like all these different sounds, but when they come together, it's perfect. What do we think of just the uh, big old cavalcade here of actors? Oh, um, it's, a, it's a crazy bunch. It, it's, it's, it's a bunch of heavy hitters. And one guy who's a great actor who I don't really want to talk about. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But Guy, guy Pierce and Carlisle obviously kicking ass. Jeremy Davies still 
every time I see him, I think of him in Saving Private Ryan, and my heart breaks a little bit. Um, and he's... He, I don't know what he's doing in this movie. It's great. It's very appreciated, though. <laughs> it's I love wild it. what it's he's like doing. He's clearly but, on the spectrum somewhere. But, but my God, if Bourbon now... And he was licking me, sick man outside. If those lines have not stuck with me for all these years, then I don't know what has. We still shout them out occasionally, you know, like, (laughs) Bourbon now. Yeah. (laughs) And then um, Neil McDonough, the man with the eyes cold as ice, and he actually, like, his introduction screaming in an icy river is w- maybe one of my favorite character introductions yeah. in anything ever. That is so yes. good. Um, I love, it all comes, to, we're talking about this idea of this, everything coming together. For me, one of those moments is when he is revealed to be alive in the tree and mm-hmm. he starts attacking Guy Pierce. And the song that kicks in at that point too is so good and so fitting for what's happening at that moment. And like, it really matches his intensity yeah, yeah. I for some reason that character really um made me curious and I I remember watching some deleted scenes that gave some backstory on him and how he was really a major but he'd been demoted and sent to Fort Spencer. Yeah, Fort the, Spencer. The, the um, anger he has is is yes. palpable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cuz he'd basically been friendly fire. He like basically shot his men for retreating when he wanted them to to attack. Mm. And that's why he hates Boyd so much. Is <laughs> like he knows you're a coward, dude. I got your number. But um Do we uh, yeah. do we want to touch the fact that his last name is Reich and he's a <laughs> blonde-haired, <laughs> blue-eyed Ubermensch or should we just move on from that? Oh, it's, uh, it's interesting to talk about because I do feel like there is something to the collection of people at this fort, and 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 uh, you mentioned Dan, like the him being ex people being exiled here to Fort Spencer. I think yeah. is really interesting. Um, even before the cannibal arrives, I think we have this. To me, this is the other connection with Midsommar, a connection to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The idea of these people who are so isolated out here, these outcasts who have been rejected by society. Um, there's a scene particularly, we even mentioned David Arquette as Cleves. I think it's him. But there's a scene when they all, when he's arrived at Fort Spencer, he's still pretty new. I think they're all having their first meal. And the way that David Arquette is kind of like laughing and he's this sort of like drugged out doofus, yeah. again, made me think of the hitchhiker laughing at the table in Texas Chainsaw. Oh, just wow. that sort of totally. demented feeling of totally. like oh, sitting down to a meal with these people and realizing, oh, they are insane. Like I might be among complete maniacs here. Yes. I think a perfect representation of Fort Spencer is with the soundtrack. We start the movie at uh, whatever fort he was at near Mexico with, oh, sorry, with this song. Very prim, proper, American, colonial, patriotic. When we get to Welcome to Fort Spencer, it's it's <laughs> a fifth grade band <laughs> playing the music. And it's, it's just such a wonderful representation for like these fucking dopes 
and these fucking idiots mm-hmm. who are just these hungry white men who won't be stopped. They understand nothing. They're stupid. But my God, are they fucking dangerous and all-consuming. Yeah. And I think that's really like the manifest destiny commentary of this movie is like, look how stupid these people are. And yet look how powerful they can be and how destructive they can be. This movie calls, I mean, it calls direct. I mean, Ives slash Calhoun has a brilliant speech about manifest destiny that really hits home for me as just this sort of like summation of what this period of America was where, like you mentioned, these people that are stupid and hungry and incredibly dangerous. And that is how we took over how this entire place was colonized. You just fill out your army with stupid, dangerous people and you just deploy them in the woods and they do their stupid, dangerous things. And you know what I mean? Like it's, it's destructive. Like you mentioned, it's, uh, I really love what this movie is talking about. I think it's brilliant. It's great that it came out when it did too in 1999. It's this sort of like look back before we hit a new millennium of like, where have we come from? Uh, you know, how did we exactly get here to this place today? And uh, yeah, it really gets me thinking this movie just like about, <laughs> about history and uh, you know, this idea of consumption of, of land and space and things like that. Yeah, I feel like you could pretty much describe the movie by saying it's about consumption, you know, mm-hmm. not and not <laughs> not just but both consumer what 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 becomes conspicuous consumption, but but really it's just this hunger for more. And what Martha says at one point about Wendigo, always take, never yeah. never give. And it is kind of that mentality. And when you think about it in terms of the screenwriter trying to get his little Hollywood digs in about like always consuming, we always want more. We're never going to give. You're a writer. Just make something up, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I am so happy that you mentioned that that connection of the Hollywood things, because I just think of this as a California movie, too, mm-hmm. of Hollywood as this sort of like... <laughs> this place full of maniacs and you know power hungry people who will consume others to gain more strength and power like that that is a a pretty apt and like damning you know um, and people who won't think twice about ruining someone's career um for nothing you know for kicks (laughs) so yeah it's it's really uh it, it works on so many levels uh this this overall theme and the song on the soundtrack manifest destiny has this like wonderful build where it starts as this ominous thing and it's almost like it starts as just the whispers of the idea of manifest destiny and then the horrors slowly build as layer upon layer build and this song builds and becomes so dramatic and we get this this flute now with this like dramatic line and then as it keeps going we just keep adding and then we get the big drums and now it's like this industrial marching machine that is just like dominating and coming west and there's no stopping it and it's again like directionless but unstoppable (laughs) and uh, the combination of all the elements in this movie 
it, 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 it's just, I, again, it's like so lucky that this all works. Because there's so many risks being taken. And it sucks that this movie, like, bombed at the box office and made, I think, $2 million on a $12 million budget or something. is oh, not man. good. Um, Talk about a movie that was ahead of its time, too. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I, mean, I think I have not talked to a single person who has seen it and was like, what the hell? You know, like, who didn't like it on some level. I do remember you know? being very excited when we posted our episode about it last year and Sean... I'm pretty sure you reached out and were like, I love Ravenous. It's one of my favorite movies. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah. thank God someone else has actually seen this. Like, uh, like I said, I, I picked it arbitrarily off a list. You know, I had never heard of it. And I, I was on um, came across previous guest, George, his podcast, Best Little Horror House in Philadelphia, like uh, a year and a half ago or something, talking about Ravenous. And... Um, I knew I wanted to talk about it again on this show, but I also wanted to give it time to marinate and also just to figure out how to be a better podcaster and <laughs> what I wanted our show to be. And diving this far head deep into this and like getting into the soundtrack is what I've wanted to do for years. So thank you. This is this is like oh. fulfilling like a big part of my soul. You allowing me to like explain all of my like it's like i'm t i'm like explaining my dreams when i'm telling you what i'm picturing when i'm listening to a piece of music it's so like ethereal and subjective and nonsensical so thank you for allowing me to do that well I, thank you all for... makes everything you said made complete sense to me <laughs> yeah. exactly oh, yeah. and when you're talking about the music you're putting words to to feelings that i'd only sense so it's really nice to get the the yes that's that <laughs> you know that's well, that's that how works. I felt about our, your discussion with the two of you on uh, Midsommar, because mm. there's a lot of feelings in that movie. We're like, I'm, I'm like torn both ways. And so <laughs> yeah. it, that's why I love this show. It's just it's great to talk with people and figure out what the fuck's going on with these movies and our feelings. Yeah. I had yeah. another point to like just dis discuss our feelings about these movies and what it brings out of me. Um I really appreciate a horror Western. I think it's an undervalued mashup of genres. Mm -hmm. um, there Which are, ones do you like? See, it's kind of tough. I, there's, there, I mean, because it's, it's, there's not a lot that immediately jumped to mind even when I think about them. I, there's obviously, there's Bone Tomahawk, but I am not a fan of that movie um, for various reasons. Uh, one that I, I kind of classify as a horror western, even though it's not obviously one, is The Devil's Reign with William Shatner mm. um, from like the 70s. That to me mm. has has a million horror western elements to it that I really appreciate. Um, but this to me is the best I've seen because of one thing I struggle with a lot as a fan of the western genre. Um, mm. To talk about just like personal feelings and stuff uh ethnically i am i'm a native american i have uh native american ancestors um mm. but because uh of displacement and things like that i'm not very connected at all to that to the culture that i it came from you know my ancestors came from so it's kind of an interesting subject for me like the western because a lot of them don't address manifest destiny and the treatment of, na of natives and it's got a spotty history representation in cinema and i really appreciate anytime a movie even goes slightly out of its way to talk about this sort of subject because it is this thing 
that is this grand uh like almost un, un, it's under discussed you know what i mean like the like the exact history of how we got here as a nation and things like that um especially when it comes to movies and so that the fact that this movie makes this comparison from like american imperialism to wendigos which are like an actual native myth across a lot of different native tribes they have something very similar to the wendigo the fact that it makes it makes a connection between American imperialism and imperialism and that it, to me is so appreciated yeah. and it's just not something that is talked about enough in horror Westerns. And it's part of my dislike of Bone Tomahawk, which I really appreciate you guys episode about it because I think that movie is really interesting in a lot of ways. But something that it does not quite achieve for me is its depiction of, of the monsters in that um, it's, it's something that I feel is rather it's it's. I know it's something the movie is exploring and trying to bring up different points about it, but it just, like, as a concept, does not sit right with me, you know? I still don't know what's really going on at Bone I don't, <laughs> yeah. It, it's so hard to say, and that's why, I, and that's I, why for I, me, that, like... It perplexes me. Yeah, me too, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's why it's a movie where I have this dislike of it, but I am also looking at it being like, it is a weird, weird movie. And there are some strange things going on there, and I cannot speak to all of them, just how it makes me feel as a concept, you know what I mean? So that's why I, I can totally understand people who do find things to enjoy in it or to, like, appreciate about it, because they're there. They're 100% there. But, like, you know, it's, it's a difficult movie for me to kind of wrap my head around. Um, I get it, though. Yeah. And yeah. keeping in the, the horror-western thread... Uh, not to discount or derail from anything that you've been talking about, Greg, which is much deeper and more important than the shit I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but um, have you, I've recently been uh, introduced to a ton of Westerns through my other podcast, uh, Stagecoach Justice, that I do with Eli and our other friend Andrew, former guest on the show. Um, and we watched And God Said to Cain. Have you seen mm. this film? No, but I love that title. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For a Western, uh, like, that's great. That's a good one. And, and it is a quote-unquote horror Western. It has, like, a supernatural kind of element to it. Um, and But also it has this, like, slasher element as well. Um, but it's, let's see, 1970 is where it came from. So I think of... Um, the idea that like a horror Western would be a more modern thing. There's ones from the fifties. There's ones in the sixties wow. and seventies. Uh, it's been around nearly as long as the Western has as a genre. Uh, the, one of the initial ones that we watched was the wind. Um, there was a remake a couple years ago um, from three or four years ago now. Uh, but, is, that a, is that a female-led movie? Yes. Yes, it is. I I might have seen the new one. Okay. Uh, the new one I enjoyed also. The sound mix, uh, I think streaming is a little wonky. Um, but just to say, I think there is a thread of interest going through these things of exploring horror and the Western. And I do think specifically with regards to bone Tomahawk and its filmmakers, that's, yeah. I mean, 
I don't know if I would have as many problems with it if I didn't know who made it. Yes, 100%. <laughs> I mean, when I first watched it, too, knowing less about the filmmakers, I did find more to, to think about it and like or more to like ponder about it, being like, okay, what they're doing here maybe has some interesting, you know, uh, elements to it. And then <laughs> the more you learn about the filmmaker, the more difficult it gets uh, yes. to kind of see it that way. Yeah. Uh, and I know we kind of elided that during our talk to yeah, which is fair too because I mean itself. like you should I mean hey if you want to put you know if you do think about the separation of the art and the artist which I I do try to do a lot I mean you that movie is the same cha- the same the same thought you know to like just view it as on its own as a movie too so I understand the decision yeah. I try to look at it as a Kurt Russell movie. Exactly. And as a <laughs> Kurt Russell movie, it it is he is doing fine fine work there. And like He is. It's I I will say whatever I I will say about the rest of that movie, but him and Richard Jenkins are such a great pair. Oh, like Richard it's Jenkins undeniable. That movie is you know? So good. I just realized David Arquette is also in that, isn't he? In the very beginning. <laughs> he is. Hey. <laughs> look at that. I literally just that just dawned Arquette. on Arquette. Yeah. The old two-timer dogging it. <laughs> so that's the other another thing I was going to mention that was in my notes was Arquette was in Bone Tomahawk previously featured on the show. He was in, um, oh, what is the uh, Walter Hill Western that we just watched for the other podcast? Uh, and the thing is, I don't think David Arquette has a face for period pieces. No, he, he kind of <laughs> doesn't. <laughs> he might now. Um, but back in yeah. the 90s, he was too, he had a baby face. Yeah. 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 He's very silly in this. And he has very little teeth when, like, when they put grime <laughs> on his teeth, I swear it's something that like, makes his teeth look littler mm-hmm. or something. I don't know. <laughs> he's got little he's like teeth. cackling with laughter, smoking the, the pipe yeah. with the guy. And he's. He's going for it so hard where Greg, like you said, that that dinner scene. Yeah. He doesn't even say a word. He just giggles the whole time. Yeah, like a child. And the first time I just found it funny, then this time it like that that Texas chainsaw vibe set in for me. I'm just like I kind of sat so like I, I sat in like I'm so Boyd's, glad you mentioned that. I like put myself in Boyd's shoes of like you're just arriving at this place you've been exiled to, and these are your companions, like these people. And how scary that could be, you know, like you're out here with the rejects and, <laughs> you know, the the criminals, essentially. And, and like it sounds like in uh, in Reich's case, you know, committing a war crime, executing your own soul. Like that's knowing that backstory. I have to find those deleted scenes. That is wild. Yeah, I, I really appreciate. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure if it was deleted scenes or if it was reading that's you know, things about the movie. Yeah. It's in there somewhere. So it's, it's, interesting. it's really kind of cool. I think it is in deleted scenes, though. Also, um, Jeffrey Jones's character, uh, Colonel Hart, also, I, I, I want to say that there was some deleted scene about how he ended up getting shipped out there. It was like he fooled around with, with the senior officer's wife or something. Mm. But I appreciate that Martha <laughs> is the only character shown to be constantly capable yeah and badass enough she, to go she is on fantastic foot into the wilderness um and like then th- this world of stupid men this woman and at, at the end i love that she she comes in 
she sees Guy Pierce and Carlisle trapped in a gigantic bear trap. Who knows <laughs> what they were trying to catch in that bear trap? I've never seen a trap that big. And she basically is just like, no, these fucking white people, I'm <laughs> out of here. And just like, I'm done. Serve, like, it's so good. I, I love Martha it, in this movie. It's like that line from uh, Dead Man. Uh, stupid fucking white man. <laughs> <laughs> uh no she she's wonderful and it is very appreciated just on that sort of native representation front um that they actually speak washu on screen and it you know uh that i feel is even rare to even have the the language represented in these in in westerns and things like that and spoken oh, cool. by indigenous actors yeah I, I mean i i didn't realize that they were speaking in the actual language that's rad yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Uh, I didn't know either. Something that really, just on that kind of subject, that Tom Hanks movie, News of the World, really, really got under my skin with the way it handled, like, indigenous people because, like, the the plot is that he's escorting this girl, this little girl that was taken by a tribe and grew up, like, in a in a tribal community. And she only, I don't think she speaks English. I think she only speaks the indigenous language. Um but not, you literally never see a single indigenous person speak the language on screen. It's all white people who speak it. Oh. And you can kind of tell the movie is trying to sort of like bring, uh, you know, it's talking about language and things like that and communication. And it never actually has like an indigenous person speak the language on screen, you know? Yeah. Um, did the did the new Predator actually get the indigenous language yeah. release or is that something i just read about because i it was an I alternate movies a lot so i can't yeah some things are hard for me to find it's an alternate audio track on the movie you can select on hulu yeah oh, that's um cool. but there's some kind of there's some kind of disappointing decisions made in there where it's a dub um it's not that they are speaking it they on on, on set i think i'm not i'm kind of curious about what happened there because supposedly they claim they did shoot two simultaneous versions an english version where they're all speaking english the entire time and then an indigenous version where they are speaking that like actually there on set but then what actually came out was a dub of the english version and so the lip sync is completely off oh. and some people have mentioned that that just is too big of a hang-up for them when mm. watching the indigenous version that's yeah yeah because so, you're watching indigenous why would I think You're the, watching I them think speak the, their own language. I, they, uh, that's annoying. I think the excuse I, I, for it, too, uh, is probably that the, you don't want to sound mix the indigenous version, too, right? That just costs money. And it's probably cheaper to just overlay a dub, is my guess. I don't know. Yeah. You would be making, well, Josh might have some insight, but you'd be essentially making one and a half movies at that point, yes. right? Yeah. At least I, at one least and a half. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I uh, while we're talking about that, like I had my I had my 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 quibbles with Prey, and I I do love the representation of it and mm -hmm. the idea and the setting and the actors are all brilliant. I just think the actual story, uh, came off to me as like an afterthought when considering the culture too. You know, like there's just things that happen in it or things that don't happen in it. I felt there were missed opportunities with that setting. And the culture that it, like, you know, the main character is a part of. I thought it could have been more. I, I, especially with what fucking strong performers they had. Yeah. Throwing in some, like, kind of 
what I thought were like kind of campy cheesy parts with like French trappers and stuff that just mm-hmm. tonally didn't work. I I, I think <laughs> if it was less of an action movie and more of a forest survival thriller, yeah, totally, it would have been way more like grounded and, and cooler and then you don't have to worry like the cgi predator aspect of it you don't have to worry <laughs> about that stuff as much because now it's just more the story of like one woman surviving and it i, I there's a lot of things i liked about it but there's stuff i really didn't yeah. like to yeah i totally agree on that um going back to to ravenous like that uh I, I really do love Martha's react. You mentioned you talk about her acting in that scene where she sees Boyd and uh, and Ives together. I love her performance when I think it is it Knox tells her that she has to walk on foot to go get <laughs> yeah. the the army and just her volunteers. her silent resignation to her like to like well it's not going to get done otherwise. I yep it has to be me that does this. Well- she because she's the only one capable mm-hmm. of walking there on foot these yeah. men without her would be stranded and completely cut off from all communication yeah without their horses all, like dolts <laughs> uh. um I, I I do like the idea of introducing us to the the Wendigo early with the the Mexican American War and Guy Pierce like drinking the blood and being in a dog pile and just imagining like it's bad enough the few times I've been in like a dog pile like when I was a kid or whatever and like having tons of people piled on top of you is so claustrophobic. But then for them to be like dead bodies and everything, um, I who's the commander that dismisses him? The guy oh, from yeah. West Wing, John Spencer. Yeah, he's great. I, I think he's yeah. great in this, and I, yeah, so I haven't good. seen him in a lot of. He's also um, he's Womack, and uh, yes, and um, and then the uh, Rock. Fuck the Rock. How's your bowling arm, Womack? And it, Sean Connery <laughs> yells at this guy a lot, but I love John Spencer in this. He's great. And the fact that in the very end, it's kind of like a joke shot insert that he consumes <laughs> the stew. Love it. And now, even when Guy Pierce thinks he breaks the loop, you can't break the loop of Manifest Destiny. Yeah. It's, it, it, it infects everything. Yeah, um, you're kind of left with the feeling like, Oh, so that's how this state got settled. <laughs> <laughs> this guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really love the fact, too, just uh, the way this movie, he's a part of it, because he does look somewhat silly in his outfit when you see him all, like, dressed to the nines. Yeah. Uh, and just the fact that this movie, the silliness inherent to not only to the cannibalism aspect, but the military life, too, you know, like it is just like inherently portrayed as dumb. The fact that people do this <laughs> stuff and the, that the military is the way it is with like all this stuff, you know, um, this yeah. idea that he is decried as a coward for capturing a fort with as few casualties as possible. And he's told you fucked up on an embarrassment to us. Like that to me yeah. is so funny. 
Um, yeah, yeah, because it was, uh, you know, it, it he, he the way he got in behind enemy lines was pretending to be dead. Yes. So, and, <laughs> listen, and, and I get it. Some... That seems like a valid strategy. Exactly. Yeah. Looking around and just sees carnage over. I think today hey. people would plan that in advance. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah. I feel like, but they say that. With... But yeah, like Slauson says it to him. It's like you you laid there while your your compatriots ran off and died for their country. And to me, it's like, well, yeah, that just sounds very stupid of them to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. I feel like the time, you know, back then you'd be like, you know, uh, decried as a coward or whatever. And today you'd be like, oh, that was really smart. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. good for you. And I think that's, I that's, a, that's that. partly why the ending scene gets me so emotional when the, you talked about the music when it really settles in over over Boyd dying and his journey is finally ending because it's like he is again making this decision that some might see as cowardly mm. and refusing to survive but in that moment the music tells you that is the brave that is the brave thing to do that the mm. coward's way out would be to eat Ives and kind of become one of him or continue on as one of him he's already a cannibal at this point but um would be to continue to cycle. That's the coward's way out, you know, is to steal another man's strength or essence. Um, there was an original, an early draft of the of the script, and I don't know if they actually, I don't think they ever filmed it. I think it got tossed pretty early on, which suggests that Boyd did eat Ives and went on, because then it, the last scene was supposed to be in this early draft that thank god they didn't film is like modern day and he's leading some oh, wow. hikers wow. into the cave yeah <laughs> but oh no that would have oh, been awful <laughs> yeah that would ruin the, the whole movie pretty much totally but, um but yeah <laughs> so i'm always fascinated with the logistics of cannibalism uh they talk about <laughs> Uh, when he first shows up that they ate, they went from shoes to belts to roots and they couldn't find much nourishment there. Uh, and then later talks about eating five men in three months alone. Yes. He's going through a man every 18 days. Yeah. How long, how long could you make one guy last? I mean, I assume that the first guy you would try to stretch him out a little bit. Like, he gets his vampire cannibalism uh, strength eventually and, you know, decides to eat as many as he can, I guess. Also, well, Josh, that's isn't that when at one point the music cue kicks and he goes, and that's when things got out of hand. Yeah. And that's when the music really kicks in and yes. it's like, now we're just feasting like at will and we just like are craving flesh and it's not even about survival anymore we are gorging ourselves well and the idea of the uh wendy windy no windy no, yeah. oh I, yeah, I love how he says that. and he goes i know i mispronounced it i'm making a point yeah. I mean, the whole the the uh the whole background myth isn't that a wendigo starts off as as a shaman a shaman mm -hmm. gone wrong you know like eats he eats another man and then 
over time loses control and becomes a monster. Um, the more he eats, the more he craves and um, stops even looking human over time. Which, um, I don't know what, what if, if Ives had kept going, what things would have looked like. <laughs> yeah. And a, and a lot of like the original myths and um, like more modern takes on the Wendigo have them as like having antlers and uh, other like animal features. Mm-hmm. So they start be they stop being human altogether. And hey, going back to hit the show Hannibal too, they yeah. often in their dream sequences depicted Hannibal as a Wendigo. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, oh, interesting. Like it is like a movie monster that has really taken off. I think the past couple decades. I've um, seen some criticism of the portrayal with the antlers and everything saying, yes. oh, that's that like is, a it's modern a very, thing. It's a very modern depiction. Yeah. What's, what's that game, Until Dawn, on yes. PS4? Which I, I really liked that. I, now, I loved that twist with those. Yeah, I wanna, that was fun. I'm going to feel self-conscious if I say Wendigo, as they say in this movie. <laughs> I, I don't. I but think everywhere, it's yeah, yeah. Everywhere else I've heard it say Wendigo. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I think it is Wendigo. But... Wendigo. It's sounds, got a great ring sound, to it. It's yeah. got a metal <laughs> ring to it, I think. Um, but yeah, like Pet Cemetery is a Wendigo story. Um, when you when you like when you read that book, they almost explicitly spell that out. I mm-hmm. don't remember if they do in either film version. But then there was just a movie. Uh, what I think it was announced and had a trailer pre-pandemic, and then came out after. Like maybe 2021, but like um, a movie just called Wendigo that I have not yet watched, but do want to check out. Oh. Um, uh, and then there's the new uh, Luca Guadagnino. Yes. Guadagnino. Yeah. Bones movie and all. Out. I'm so excited. One thing that surprised me picking up on on this time, which I, I, is um, Calhoun Ives mentioning that like not only did he have tuberculosis, but he had suicidal idolation. And mm one of the strengths and powers that he gained from the consumption is a relief from his mental illness. And he was on his way to an asylum, as he puts it. And I thought, I, I was just surprised to hear that brought up in a, from a movie in 1999 yes. when mental illness was not really talked about much at all. And for this to be a cure for that and like a demonstration of the power of this is to help you through your mental illness. That's almost that's almost more powerful than like the physical restoration that you get like post stabbing or whatever is the healing of your mind. Like what what an enticing offer that would be. I feel like like it was it's almost that the the hunger surpasses it it drives you to want to live. Um because you have to eat. And um, so that is what really chases away Ives's uh, dark thoughts, you know, uh, his depression. I think you could argue that he's still quite mentally ill, but (laughs) (laughs) if he even tried this, you know, like, hey, this guy just told me this would work. So, you know, I'm going to give it a shot and and kill my my scout, (laughs) you know, my guide. Eat to live, don't live to eat. (laughs) <laughs> Benjamin Franklin. They quote Benjamin Franklin twice at the end of this movie. Yeah, yeah. Which I, to me also feels pointed to have your like manifest destiny cannibal like quote him. Yeah. Um, 
a famous glutton who is lecturing people about <laughs> right about uh not living to eat um but uh i th- i think that aspect of it it you know it clears your mind it helps free up your mind and cures you of your of your it gives you a will to live and things like that that's another connection uh, that the character has to religion and uh, yet another connection to midsummer the idea of this like you know um this sort of like more ethereal lifestyle like supplanting your previous one and making everything better you know what i mean like it's like it's a cure-all for everything it makes you physically stronger and it like eases your you know it, it calms your soul uh and but at the expense of hurting people and eating them. I was going to say yeah. it's sort of like the uh, hallucinogens in Midsommar. <laughs> mm-hmm. and what yeah. do we think of um, Ives at the end with the bloody cross on his forehead? I know <laughs> earlier in the movie, the idea of cannibalism is compared to Christianity, with the white yeah. man consumes the, mm-hmm. the flesh of Christ every Sunday, and so I, I feel like that's like. For me, I feel like that's Ives just kind of having like a little bit of a cheeky, cheeky little mockery at Christianity. <laughs> I'm not sure, though. What do, you, what do you think about that cross on his forehead? A lot of his character is a weird sort of parallel to religious like thing. I mean, he has the cross that he is holding when he first when he first appears uh, and good point has an incredibly Jesus-y look with his long hair and beard, especially he when they first find him. Yeah. He talks scripture with, the, uh, with Davies also. Yeah. He introduces yeah. himself as his first line. I wrote it down this time, I believe. He says, I, I am a servant of God. Servant this of how, God. With what he first says. And so there is a whole element here to him being this like vaguely religious or like spiritual figure that comes to them preaching this new sort of lifestyle and this new sort of like philosophy, you know, and, so com- well. and completely dominates them and convinces, you know, who is supposedly the smartest of them, which is, um, which is Boyd, right? Not Boyd. Sorry. What is Jeffrey Jones's character? Colonel yeah. Hart. Yeah. Hart. Yeah. Yeah. Like he comes in and he convinces him like, yeah, you're right. This is going to be the way of the future, you know, <laughs> way of the future. Yeah. yeah. Way, way of the future. future. Way of the future. Dude, the you, future. I, th- that just added another layer of love that I have for this movie. Mm-hmm. Because he is the white Christian force coming from Europe, from like literally yeah. descending from Europe. That's right. And sweeping across the country, consuming it. And yeah. mm-hmm. oh, that's so good. God damn it, this movie. <laughs> Fucking like, love this movie. Like it's, a swarm it's, of it's brilliant. <laughs> like a swarm of locusts consuming. Yeah, there's like just the more we talk about it, there's so much more to love about this. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, if we just want to get down into like let's just talk about we've been talking like really big ideas. Let's just talk about some of the small moments with some of these characters because there's some really funny laugh out loud moments. And one of my favorites that still gets me is when when Ives returns for the first time after Boyd makes his journey from the mountain down and Guy Pierce faints by just throwing himself into a wall. <laughs> just, it's so over That's, the top. That that was a great PTSD reaction though. If you it, yeah. I, I I can imagine it'd be like 
if you've been attacked by somebody and suddenly they walk in the room and he he has nowhere to hide i saw that as him attempting to hide throwing himself on the floor kind of like don't hurt me he's that afraid of ives he's terrified <laughs> i love that sort of um and he won't look up or make eye contact when he's explaining to Slauson, that's the man, that's the man. You know, yeah. that's him, that's Ives. Uh, I really love his performance in this. The fact that he is playing such a sort of like, often a wallflower of a character, kind of so quiet and reserved and like, you know, somebody who uh, is really not trying to like assert himself for a lot of it and kind of just stay out of the way best he can. But then he has these moments like when he is first talking to Ives about cannibalism and he asks, you know, he asks, like, did you feel stronger when you ate people like that? Mm -hmm. This so revealing about like what he's conflict, what he's what he's been going through and what he's been struggling with, you know, silently by himself. Uh, I, I think Guy Pierce really, really I, I, I love Guy Pierce. I think he's such a brilliant actor. And he was yeah. the reason I picked this out in the first place. I was like, well, cannibalism, Western and Guy Pierce. Those are the things that drew me to it. <laughs> <laughs> Where is Guy Pierce from? Australia. I loved the shot of a Scottish man and an Australian man with the American flag in between them <laughs> talking about the evil of Manifest Destiny that directed is by an English woman. And oh it's just, my or, God. or I don't know if she's English or Scottish, but I, Antonia yeah, I think Burr, she might be English, yeah. It's so perfect that this group of immigrants here filming in, in Europe yeah are, are are making this satire about like the good old west of america <laughs> and like the, the comedy of that really like, really struck me this time man that's an angle i haven't even considered the fact that this is a satire primarily performed and and created by by foreigners by people outside of america you know what i mean about that, like, america. that did not even really dawn on me until just now it's interesting true it's uh about Americans and what it is to really be American. Yeah. Just to have to be okay with all of this. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That's a wow, that's a really good way to put it. Absolutely. Another moment that I really love in this is um so the Knox, the proverbial drunk, who he needs to be drunk so that he doesn't recognize Calhoun Ives. Mm-hmm. First, when he says, oh, I believe the man wore a beard. Yeah. <laughs> that gets me. But when when uh, Davies goes to wake Knox up oh out of God. a drunken stupor, he wakes up looking like Donald Sutherland in, in, like, in uh, whatever that movie is where Donald Sutherland makes like a big scary face. Like, he has a look of horror on his face. And then he says, who? And they're like, he's awake. And he's just like, oh, fuck it. <laughs> How is Knox not played by Tim Blake Nelson? I like, I kept thinking that the entire time. Like, Every from time certain I angles, face. I was convinced. I was like, no, it is him. And then I, yep. I was like, but I know it's not. But, yeah. He oh, can make the most. Tim Blake Nelson would have been perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, this 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 is the actor who is playing Knox, so he can like make any mundane line sound hilarious. Yeah, you know, like oh, look around outside, woman. <laughs> uh, the part where Boyd attacks Ives and cuts his hand, 
and he stumbles out wearing like a cowboy hat and is like, Martha, go wake up Cleves and arrest Boyd. Yeah. And he's just <laughs> drunkenly standing there, just so inept, just can't fucking do anything. And uh, at one point, someone says, uh, Oh, I think there was too much bourbon in his bourbon this morning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when he's puking. <laughs> uh, un- yeah, unfortunately, Jeffrey Jones has a lot of great lines in this. Like, <laughs> I-, I fucking hate that that guy's a talented actor because fuck that piece of shit. Yeah, exactly. But he fits so well into like this and Deadwood. You know, that yes. this sort of like pompousness that he, he just inherently has. Um I speaking of, of Knox too, his introduction to Knox is that he was a vet once, so he acts as our doctor. Uh which yes. is don't, such don't a, get like, sick. Don't get Yeah, sick. my advice to you is don't get sick. Yeah. <laughs> the Did there's so many knows, by the way, like like when Boyd first arrives at the fort, like Martha brings him in, nobody comes out and says, you know, there's no. like there's zero welcoming. It's just Martha settling him in, you know, like absolutely no recognition that they have a new person there in their fort, you know. It just seems like a, a it just isolates him even more, you know. Josh, what you got? I was going to say the the script for this on a uh micro level is so good. The lines, the banter like I think a lot of it was lost on me the first time I watched it, but especially this last time, um, just when uh, he when he first shows up and they're talking back and forth and he says, do you have any hobbies? Yeah, oh, I like swimming. And he goes, I hope you like hard water. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Um, which took me a second to think of. Uh, I was like, wait, is there a lot of like. Iron in yeah, their pipes. Yeah, a lot of rusting the, Less rusting their indoor plumbing. Oh, it's ice. Of course. <laughs> of, of course. Really hard water. <laughs> uh, one final um, soundtrack thing here is this movie basically, there's this song. It happens near the end. It's called Save Our Soul, Lisa. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's basically just a silent hill song like this this is i think directly inspired by silent hill could be on any of those soundtracks easily and so i think essentially how the soundtrack breaks down is damon albarn did a lot of this stuff the tape loops in the and then um nyman um provided the more classical orchestration Mm -hmm. And, and just the two of them collaborating I know I've talked about them so much, but it's, it's just an amazing thing. And this is a soundtrack that I can just listen to, to just vibe out on, or go out on a hike and put on some of the songs and find healing in them, or feel like the dark mystery of the forest or whatever. It, it It's just a soundtrack that I carry with me throughout my life, and there's not too many of those that I have, honestly. Yes, uh, it's interesting. Uh, Nyman had actually said that uh, it was, you know, he denies that it was really a collaboration. He says Albarn did like 60% of the stuff and then he came in. But I feel like he's just downplaying, you know, the collaboration that did happen because uh, it's really clear both of their styles are all over it, you know. 
Yeah. And one last Ebert line he says about um, Antonia Bird. Uh, she revealed at the fin- Sundance Film Festival that she's a vegetarian, which came as no surprise. And she does what is very hard to do. She makes the weather feel genuinely cold, damp, and miserable. So much snow in the movies looks too pretty or too fake, but her locations are chilly and ominous. Wow. And <laughs> yeah, this he, does he was feel, a big fan of this. Life at, life at camp, yeah, he gave it a three out of four. And I think one thing I love, again, is life at camp looks miserable, especially that scene where they're all stuck inside during a storm, and some of them are reading by the fire, Martha's whittling a stick, and is just imagining being stuck inside with these idiots for <laughs> months on end with like no stimulation whatsoever. Another movie I... checkers. Yeah, go ahead. Another movie I think this is very this movie is very indebted to is the thing. Um mm-hmm. yeah. this idea of people isolated in the snow with this mysterious outsider that arrives to essentially consume people um it's funny too because like uh i don't know i remember this was a recent carpenter like john carpenter quote or is this something that he had said he's been saying a long time or whatever but he essentially says that like you know pretty much all of his movies you could place that exact story into a western and it would fit like he makes westerns that's kind of a secret to his like to his movies working the way they do is that like he's he's essentially taking western tropes and transplanting them into the different places and genres and so the last time i watched the thing i had that in mind and it totally is the story of this isolated community where a stranger comes to town and just shakes everything up and you know causes conflict within this this community and i just thought like you could do that in a western completely that's like high plains drifter or that's this movie you know, like you have this outside element like intruding and, you know, kind of revealing like this this evil corruption within people. The scene where Boyd is trapped, you know, with the broken leg and the passing of time being shown through the moon and the slow breaking down of his resistance um, is something that is really beautifully done as far as um the score combined with um just kind of those fever dream visions that he's having you know and he's talking to reich's body like he's his commanding officer or something should we take the hill (laughs) you know um (laughs) it's all kind of it you know the first time i saw it it didn't really register with me that this is like a full month passing um or at least ha- or at least ha- a couple of weeks. Because I, through the I still lose track of time in that yeah. where I think that happens overnight or two nights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you are you are totally right that the longer time happens in that cave. Yeah. And I like the struggle the idea of even though this man has now been dead for as you said days if not weeks. Yeah. Well, he's frozen. I still I still <laughs> might consume his soul. By eating him, wow! And yeah. like, and you know, yeah, that's why he says like, "You're safe now. You're dead." I and he has to bargain with himself to to consume him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I it the very idea of Ives 
or Calhoun or whoever he is, <laughs> brightens Boyd so much because he is the polar opposite of Boyd. Boyd just wants to kind of float along and, you know, he's, he, he just doesn't want to make waves. And um, you get the feeling that he doesn't even really want to live his life. And then you have Ives who 100% wants to live everybody's life. <laughs> he wow, wants to yeah. eat everyone's lives. And that idea terrifies him so much that he will throw himself off a cliff rather than face him. So that poor stuntman who <laughs> had to go crashing through all those branches. I was impressed because I don't know if they where they set up their air cushion or whatnot, but it looked like somebody plummeted at least 50 plus feet in those jumps. Yeah. It looks if uh, yeah, it looks really intense. It, uh, just looking over that cliff makes me <laughs> nervous. <laughs> so, should we wrap this thing up? Anyone have anything else to say about 1999's Ravenous? Uh, it was one of the few good things that happened in the early oddies <laughs> for me seeing that movie. And it's really, it's something that does not get old. I feel like those themes really, they work forever. <laughs> yeah. I may enjoy this movie more each time that I watch it. And I do try to space it out by at least six or nine months. But especially today... Josh and I often say that the the conversation elevates the movie, and I, I didn't really think this movie could be elevated more in my mind, but now I'm just going to be even more of a zealot out there in the world, <laughs> telling people to watch Ravenous, knowing that it's that first viewing is polarizing and weird. Yeah. But I can't... This movie has infected me. I I, I, I have the Wendigo hunger to like just like <laughs> spread this movie. It it, it it truly has. It's not many movies have a power over me like this one. I this is this is a five out of five for me. This is up there with Master and Commander as far as all time favorite movies of mine that we've covered on this show. Oh wow. I I'm it it does something to my brain that I don't understand, but I love it. Yeah, I still call it one of my all-time favorite horror movies, but also just one of my all-time favorite movies, period. So, yeah, it's definitely a five for me. <laughs> Greg or Josh, who's next? I, um, it's interesting. The both times I've seen this, I've given it a 4.5. And talking about it, it's interesting because now we've had this discussion about it and so many pieces of this work under a microscope, you know, and there's so much happening here that I am struggling to think, well, why isn't it a five? You know, like if I do think about it enough, I get emotional about Boyd's story and where it ends up and the way it, it kind of threads that needle of making a completing his journey by the end, but still leaving like this kind of existential dread over the movie too with spend with colonel 
Sloth or uh, General Slauson like eating the stew. Like it, it's it's a, it's such a great, brilliant ending, and it has so much going for it for what it's talking about and how how well it's pulled off. I just I think there is still some inherent messiness that we talked about from the production that you can feel that change of directors after a couple of weeks of shooting is not an easy thing to recover from. And I think the movie still wears some of that shagginess. Um, but weirdly talking about the music and how the asynchronicity, if that's even a word it, of the score, um, talking about that, that how it intentionally is making you feel discombobulated and, and sort of out of sorts that does help cover up the shakiness of the movie too. Like thinking about it where it's like, well, it's not exactly supposed to fit together like cleanly. It is about, you know, being displaced and feeling like you're in this sort of like, you know, uh, you know, I just talks about being, he was being taken to an asylum, right? Like it feels like you're in an asylum for a little bit. Like you're seeing this world completely populated by these people who are completely out of their minds um in a sense you know and so i think i'm gonna go like if it's allowed like 4.8 because <laughs> i think it's just shy of for me of being like a completely perfect like absolute favorite you know what i mean there's something that is still quite missing for me on some level that i can't even quite pinpoint it's okay i understand like when you <laughs> compare ravenous to kubrick or something it's like can these things be equal or whatever but oh i it, it hey it gets just about there like i absolutely <laughs> love this thing I, I it's weird because like the other cannibal movie i've been comparing it to is texas chainsaw massacre which is a five out of five for me mm. i think there's if i'm comparing these two as to like why that's a five and this isn't i think texas chainsaw's just like got this 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 such a primal nature to it that it really captures where this one being a satire being kind of removed from it a little you know what i mean like there's a little bit more artifice to things intention you know which is fine which is great i love artifice in movies too but mm-hmm. like the the viscerality of a texas chainsaw movie and it being about cannibalism like really 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 elevates that to me for me to like masterpiece level um yeah Whereas this one, there's something slightly missing, you know, maybe it is that it's just a tad bit too goofy at here and there. But I also give Texas yeah. Chainsaw Massacre 2 a five, which is so goofy that it's <laughs> a parody of the first one. So I don't know. I don't have my I'm, I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> I don't have a good answer for why it's not five. Well, I, I totally know what you mean, though. It, it does have that kind of Hollywood sheen over mm-hmm. it that really um, was what drove the first director away. Um, and thankfully they got Antonia Bird to, to fulfill his original vision as much as she could, but also give it her own pace. But she was complaining about how the produ- the producers kept trying to dumb it down and dumb it down. And yeah. she was, she didn't, okay. She did not sign off on those quotes for the beginning. She thought that, Hey, it, it kind of gives it away. This is a cannibal movie, <laughs> you know, like, but be, uh, you know, it's like people will figure it out. Just give them a chance. They're not yeah, all yeah. stupid. <laughs> I think that's uh, it. I similarly think... to Midsommar, this movie calls it shot with that opening panel. Yeah. <laughs> it's like both these movies call yeah. their shot and put exactly what they are right up front. And now knowing what this is on my sixth or seventh viewing of this, I laugh out loud 
when I see that title card eat me slide in and i just feel like oh I boy i'm in the arms of a, a that's lovely. the thing that it, it is it is genuinely very funny it but is. it also it but it also is probably what is really my my issue is that i think just enough of that dumbing down by the studio slipped into this movie you know yeah. at certain points to like kind of sour sour it a little bit for me yeah, like it kind of makes me sad that some of those scenes that gave the characters a little more depth got deleted mm-hmm. uh, in favor of more, um, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I do think maybe just for shaving off a little bit of time, you know, I, I'm not sure why they took them out. Um, we would have cared a lot more about those characters, I think. Um, but, you know. Uh, I th- I feel like I just love I just, it, it, a lot of it is linked to nostalgia for me and that time in life when I saw it and how much it really helped me. Um, you know how sometimes you see a movie at a hard time in life and it really pulls you out of it. It pulls yeah. you out of yourself, out of your funk. Um, and this this really gave me like a focal point during a breakup. And mm. a change in living arrangements and stuff like that. And I would just obsess and watch um, Ravenous like daily for a while, just just because <laughs> it pulled you out, you know. Like you get those movies, and for me, horror almost always is the genre that that jars me out, takes me out of my own head. So, uh, real quick on that exact thing of those movies that. Uh, particular horror movies that pull you out of things the one that that sort of recently did that for me like during the pandemic you know like a lot of people i'm at my lowest point like mentally and emotionally (laughs) and a movie that i ended up watching with some friends via discord that was just like well this sort of weirdly does pull me out of everything and kind of put things into a strange perspective was uh lucio fulci's zombie um (laughs) I don't know what it was, but watching that movie, which is crass and gross and overly sexualized to an uncomfortable degree and is so incredibly violent and weird, something about that movie being as like abrasive and as like upsetting as it is, it weirdly put things into perspective for me. And not in a way of like, well, it could be worse, but just like there's something ethereal <laughs> to this movie that <laughs> is causing me to kind of like look at things a different way. Um, it's true. It's true, though. I had yeah. that happen in 2006 with uh, the the remake of Dawn of the Dead, and I understand why everybody hates it because it's you know it's, it's not, not the, the George original. Romero. Yeah, yeah. That but... movie got me into horror. I like movies. it. Me too, right? Sean. Thank me too. You. I was. I was. I, I think it came out when I was like 16. I, I thought it was like 2003 or so. It's like 2003 or four. I think. Because I, I was like, I was in high school and I was terrified of horror movies for the longest time. But then I like had seen the intro three minutes. They released those online. And I was like, oh shit, this movie looks badass and I might be able to actually do this. Yeah. And That's... so that was like the, that was my first horror movies like that and the thing. What? I watched right around that same time of 17 where I'm like, I've conquered my fear of horror movies and now I can like enjoy them and not lose sleep over them. But still be scared. But I'm 
they've lost their power over me. Yeah. And I was like thrilled about that. So I, I, I have like a big soft spot in my heart for that movie. I, I'm yeah. a bit, I'm a bit younger than, <laughs> than you, Sean. I was like 10, I think when that came out. Um, but I was in a very similar well, place. Yeah. yeah, but I was 17 and you were 10 <laughs> and we were going through the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very but, emotional time. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's a strange thing where I I was in the same boat, so terrified of the concept of or the idea of me even watching a horror movie. And yeah. my parents, I think I was at a, I was old enough where they just didn't care what they watched around me anymore. So they rented Dawn of the Dead and watched it. Right? Actually, they bought it on DVD. I still have the DVD out there. I think on one of my shelves. But um. They bought the DVD, which is a rare thing. They they rarely ever bought horror movies and watch horror movies together. But they decided they wanted to watch Dawn of the Dead, and they didn't care that I was in the room. And so I watched it with them at 10 years old, and <laughs> the entire time just was disgusted and terrified but riveted. And I have still to this day, that is the only time I've seen it. I weirdly still have, like some dread thinking about watching it again oh but um, i i don't want you to lose the magic that's the thing that's why i haven't rewatched it yet it. yeah, yeah no. that's why i have not yet done gone back to it like even though i, I don't even want really to mention the fact that ty burrell of modern oh family i remember that movie okay when you i remember when i first saw him in modern family i was like oh that's the guy from dawn of the dead like oh uh, yes Right? Yeah. When I first watched Modern Family, I was like, oh, it's the douchebag from Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's that weird military guy from yeah. Evolution. <laughs> I saw that in theaters, too, as a really young kid, weirdly. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, the, the scene that stuck with me from that is the chainsaw death in that one on, like, the bus at the end. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. The it, accidental... It's so, it's so messed me up watching it for the first time. Um... <laughs> Like, I'm pretty sure I covered my eyes, like, as it started. So I only saw a flash of it, I think, but... That's I remember really being like, what a dumb way to die. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, that was part of why it was so terrifying to me. Was because, like, oh, it was a complete accident, and now this person is chainsawed up, you know, like... Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Josh, what did you think Josh, of Ravenous? Josh, <laughs> the rating of Ravenous, yeah. Um, uh, I have to agree. Texas Chainsaw is a five for me uh because it does evoke emotion but the emotion is not like i don't cry i don't get elated i am disgusted <laughs> to the point mm -hmm. of uh i'm 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 viscerally upset uh so i teared up today when trek to the cave played watching the movie seeing them see, hiking in those mountains it, it just Whatever reason, it hits me and it makes me tear up. Two for two today on the tear ups. <laughs> Ravenous doesn't get me there, and I think it holds me at a little bit of a remove. Also, because of the the goofiness of it, and because of Antonio Bird's background, probably there's a slight staginess to it. Um, even though there is Definitely. some some great camera work, there's a bit of that proscenium you still feel there. Um, and it's not used in like uh, a super clever way or an interesting way. It just feels like this isn't something she got the chance to do very often. And she was more comfortable in another, in another world. Um, unlike the, apparently the new um, Florence Pugh movie, uh, it starts at the outside of the soundstage. It, like 
which I think is fascinating. I haven't seen the movie. I've seen the opening two minutes. And I'm like, what the <laughs> hell is going on here? This is this looks great. This is exactly... I love when movies take big swings. Um, so, all that said, Ravenous is a four, but it's a four with a heart. Because I do... <laughs> I really appreciate this movie, and I'm so happy that it exists. Uh, I'll take it. Occasionally, yeah. I give like things a one star and a heart. Uh, because, just because they're horrible, but I'm glad they exist. But this one is actually great, and I'm glad it exists. Yeah. So let's wrap up with a quick little recommendation. Uh, let's say a holiday movie, either Thanksgiving or Christmas. What What would you say your go-to is? And for me and my family, after Thanksgiving dinner, we watch Christmas Vacation <laughs> once. And then we watch it again on Christmas Eve again. And it's just a movie that I've loved my entire life. It's Chevy Chase at his absolute peak. And I cannot wait to watch that with my family in like nine days. Hell yeah. Awesome. Um, For me, I know the more obvious choice for this franchise is the first one, but for me, it's Gremlins Two. Is yes. one that I end up watching around this time of year uh, a lot. So it's pretty traditional, like in my family on Christmas Day. Um, you know, I, I, it just so happens. I, I just, I'm usually the one of the first ones awake, and so you're kind of waiting for everyone else to get up, and I always end up just kind of putting a movie on to watch first thing, and then people will trickle in and we'll watch the movie, and then we'll do presents and stuff. And great. Um, That's like my favorite thing. I it's put great. the coffee it's the best. on. Yes. I'm up yes, first. Exactly. And I start a movie yep. and then like a little a kid wanders out or whatever. And sometimes <laughs> I'm not even watching like a Christmas themed movie, but just yes. like a horror movie or something. And it just it's the quiet before the storm mm-hmm. and everyone slowly wakes up, but I love being the first yeah. one awake. Two years in a row, a very funny thing happened where uh uh one one year I chose the Big Lebowski to put on in the morning. And everyone comes in, and we're all watching The Big Lebowski, having a great time. And my dad hands me uh, one of the gifts with like a wry smile, you know, a very knowing smile. And I open it, and it's a mug with the dude on it, like saying the dude <laughs> abides. Just randomly, I we never talk about Big Lebowski beforehand or anything like that. I arbitrarily chose it because it was streaming, and then I ended up getting a mug uh, with <laughs> Jeff Bridges on it. The very next year. And this is why this is my pick for this recommendation. But I put on Gremlins 2. We have a great time watching it as people are getting up and coming out. We all are just like, man, we have not seen this movie um, recently enough. And we all just have a really good time. And my brother, same thing. Very cheeky smile. Gives me my present. And it is the Mohawk as a figure of the Mohawk Gremlin from Gremlins 2. Just coincidentally, again, none of us were talking about it beforehand. I didn't be I wasn't like. Hey, I'm really loving Gremlins 2 right now and want a gift from Gremlins 2. <laughs> it was just I randomly chose it as the movie to watch that morning and he had just happened to get me a gift from Gremlins 2. So, that's my that's my answer. Beautiful. <laughs> Diane, what you got? Well, um I haven't done Christmas with my family in ages, um just because we're all, you know, they all have kids. They're, you know, our parents have passed and the family home is gone. And 
you know, it's just I'm older now. So it's me and my husband usually. And so we can just sit around and watch movies all day. And my new <laughs> favorite for Christmas is Krampus with Tony Collette and Adam Scott. Yes. Um, nice. And I, I, I don't know. I just think it's neat. But um, my longstanding one would be Die Hard. <laughs> you know, classic. We usually watch that on Christmas Eve, um, and then of course Christmas Story, like a million times in between. So. <laughs> well, it's just uh, on twenty four seven throughout all of December, so it's hard. Exactly. It's kind of hard to escape Christmas Story. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sean and I have apparently opposite views when it comes to Christmas Vacation. Um, I have no nostalgia for that movie. I watched it for the first time like five or six years ago. Did not appreciate it. Uh, it 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 does not warm the cockles of my heart. That being said, the I'm going to recommend a triumvirate of films that I appreciate, and I watched them uh, for a few years. Uh, in the in between here, I would watch at least one or two of them while I was wrapping my kids' presents. Um, now that's not an all day chore because they're older and <laughs> listen, you're getting a set of tires this year. It's fine. But, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to go with the nice guys, kiss, Ooh. kiss, bang, bang and oh, the I'm ice so storm. Glad you said that. <laughs> I'm glad you said kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Yes. Because that's yes. one of mine too. <laughs> the, Shane Black. Said, well, the last one was yeah. uh, the ice storm. Oh, oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a very sad one to watch yes. on Christmas. <laughs> but all three Christmas set neo noirs, uh, which I love. Um, they're all wow. cynical, except for I think they do have little little beating hearts somewhere inside of them. Except for maybe uh, the ice storm. That's just a. Uh, you should appreciate your family that you have. <laughs> Mm. yeah <laughs> type movie um and it's just it's a nice little collection uh i think of the insight into me <laughs> what you get uh what do you get the man who has everything seasonal depression that's <laughs> uh all on our josh do you have any ideas for our next episode because i think I want to show you Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale, which is that Finnish movie, and it's like, it's a little bit like Goonies with some horror elements, but it's like a kid-led action-adventure movie. Do you have anything that See, you would want to show me that would pair with something like that? Um, I don't know anything that would pair. I was going to save my last holiday time pick, though... Uh, f to go along with that, which is the Ice Harvest, the John Cusack <laughs> movie. I I don't know anything about it. Uh, it's just another Christmas film. Um, and it's it's also dark. It's humorous. Uh, it's not full of whimsy though. But also, it wouldn't make you cry or upset like the movies last year did. So. <laughs> all right well the next time we're gonna be watching i don't know though sports and something i'm, I'm not i'm in, not etching that in stone 
in that yeah. exact same vein, in that exact same strange subgenre. Um, and I guess I may be half pitch- pitching this as a as a companion, but okay. Dial Code Santa Claus. Yes, that is a is, fun film. Be, yeah, uh, that really needs to be seen to be believed. That is a shockingly, shockingly good movie. <laughs> you think that'd be a good pair with Rare Exports? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Have you seen it? Yeah, we watched it um, maybe the first year of the pandemic. The, or like, yeah, because we we, we streamed uh, Eli put us together all, the, all these marathons for us. And that was in one of the streams. Um, I remember watching it sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly enough. Uh, but yeah, that would probably that would be a good fit. Dial M for Santa Claus. <laughs> Dial code Santa, Santa, Santa Claus. Claus. Okay, I was Although, say, that doesn't make any sense as a title. <laughs> oh, it, I mean, there's a lot of different titles. There's like a, there's like six different titles for the movie, yeah. and even Dial Code Santa Claus is a weird like reference to the French internet that doesn't exactly translate over to America to to English. So, uh, dial M, dial M for Santa Claus makes just as much sense to us. <laughs> right on. Well, we'll be watching whatever that movie's called and rare exports. Sweet. So, Diane, Greg, thank you so much. I, I loved this episode. This was a wonderful conversation. Uh, this was a long one. Thank you so much for giving, being so generous with your time. Yeah, thank you. thank you guys for having us. Really appreciate it. Really loved coming back. Thank it you guys. It was super fun. Thank you for inviting me. Awesome. That, yeah, I, so many insights into these movies that I, I, both these movies still perplex me. And I think <laughs> that's such a cool thing is that even after talking about these for so long, I still think the next time I watch either of these, I'll pick up on something else. Absolutely There's true. still a more to them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Josh, do you want me to close it out, or do you want to close it out? Uh, you go ahead and close it out, and tell everyone that you love them when you do it. Okay. <laughs> What's the other movie called? Not Rare Exports? Dial Code Santa Claus. Okay, so next time we're going to be watching Dial M for Santa Claus and Rare Exports. <laughs> we will see you in two weeks. Please... Be kind with yourself, then once you're kind with yourself, then you can spread that love out to other people. It's really hard to love other people when you don't love yourself and we forget to love ourselves. And I know it's really hard. Sometimes that's the hardest person to love yourself. But I'm telling you, you can do it. I'm here for you. I believe you. I believe in you. And the show needs to end now because we've rambled for too long. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Good night, guys. (laughs) 